Life is a journey. It's not always easy. It shouldn't be, or it would not be worth living. I'm not a man of faith. I'm not a man who comes to belief easily. It took many trials and tribulations for me to get to where I am in the paranormal, in both a literal and figurative sense. I'd started my journey as a young boy who believed in everything. Then, as I got older, I became jaded and cynical and shut out those things. As time went on, experiences opened those doors for me once again, slowly, deliberately, and with a message each time. I left the animal hospital with only a postcard containing Beatty's name in paw prints. That was all I had to show for 16 years. So tragically unfair. I felt robbed, cheated. Even my work in the paranormal wasn't enough to allow me to believe that the spirit of my friend would live on. That is, until his ashes arrived home a week later. They were contained in a simple yet tasteful wooden box with a brass placard that read Beatty. I placed it on a shelf and put his favorite toy next to it. The week had been a tough one. I still hadn't quite processed what had happened, and this once again made it real. I went to bed that night with the wound freshly gouged, and then... I sit on what I recognize as my bed. My back is against the wall. Whatever I'd intended on doing next is interrupted by a vibration. Something has jumped up on the bed with me. It only takes a moment to recognize whom. I see his black fur, shiny and healthy. His eyes are golden and clear. I hear him purring loudly and strongly. Beatty walks across the bed and curls himself into the crook of my arm, as he used to always do on the couch. As he sits there, he looks back at me, like old times. His purr is so loud that it wakes me like a splash of water to the face. I bolted straight up in the sheets, looking around. I searched for signs of which reality I was in. The clock on the night table read 3.15 a.m. I'm not a believer in the 3 a.m. phenomenon, when the veil between worlds is said to be at its thinnest, but the dream had been so vivid, so real, that I had to take note of the time. I stumbled out of bed and into my living room, past Beatty's food and water dishes, past his scratching post, and straight to where the wooden box sat. I believe that Beatty came to visit me that night. In those moments, he came to let me know that he still exists beyond just memories of him. His soul, his energy is still out there. He came to reaffirm my faith, to keep me from retreating into a fortress of walls and cynicism. Love is forever. Despite the pain I feel over his absence, knowing that his essence is eternal does soothe the loss, and I hope to see him again someday. My ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Rory, and I'm joined by the undeniably strange duo, Nick and Jay. Oh, thank you. Hi. You're welcome. And on this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. 
and we're back in the basement as always in the basement cold dark in in a hoodie filled with spiders shivering filled with spiders i i can't let rory see because then they will no longer come down to the basement it's true i really really hate spiders (laughs) (laughs) uh how's it going guys um, it's going pretty good. Yeah. How, about you, how about you guys? I'm tired as all hell. Work is kicking my ass, but you know, that's not unusual, I suppose. Yeah, tired is just how I've lived since I hit like 27. Like <laughs> once I got there, it was all downhill. I, I I just started getting more and more tired. I think I entered sleep debt around then, and I've just never paid it off. To be fair, I think like I spent so much of my life just not not really sleeping you know, because I was just doing stuff. And then, you know, then I started working a lot and I don't really sleep. So I think I've just lived in a perpetual state of sleep debt since I was like 19. Much like my student loans, the sweet release of death will get me before it's paid off. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So what are we reading today? Speaking of, uh, you know, not sleeping. Well, we did, in fact, read the book Grains of Sand, Tales of a Paranormal Life by Brian J. Kano. And if you don't know that name, you've probably seen him. If you're into the paranormal shows, he's been on a ton of shows. And he yeah. is uh, the voice of Paranormal Caught on Camera. Well, he's one of them. Yeah, one of them. He's, yeah, like he, he's one, one of their of, talking heads. I actually really do. I like that show. It's, it's good background noise. Exactly. Like, it's yeah. not a show I can actively watch. But having it on in the background occasionally, seeing a cool spooky video. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm into it. Uh, so what do we think of the book? I, I liked the book. Okay. Um, I just, I struggle with autobiographies in general. Um, Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And, um, I was also, you know, reading it at work in between, uh, in between seeing clients. So that may also have impacted my opinion of it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I very similarly, I struggle with autobiographies partially because, Especially uh, a lot like with Amy Bruni's book. It's like, these are neat stories. This is neat information. Uh, there's not as much really to like deeply chew on. I'll say he gave us more than Amy Bruni's book did in terms of like kind of more esoteric metaphysical ideas that we can kind of dig into. But on the whole, it was an enjoyable read. It was pretty quick. Uh, several of the stories were, were freaking hilarious, and I'm looking forward to talking about them. Yeah, I enjoyed the book for, for what it was. Like, overall, I, I think if you're interested in learning about this guy's life, this is definitely the book for you. The one thing that I will say, there's, what, 21, 22 chapters or whatever. Each one is just a different story mm-hmm. in the book. As he calls them, they're all grains of sand, mm-hmm. you know, that he's collected along, along his journey. Um, and I... Just by the nature of the style of book this is, when it comes to to the summary that I did, a lot of the stories that are in here, they didn't make the summary. And that's just the nature of when you have 21 different stories. I can't, I, I you know, it's impossible for me to be able to tell you every single one of them. So what I did is I just picked a few that I enjoyed um, and we're going to, and that are going to be based around the five different discussion questions. Yeah, no, that sounds great. I mean, that's pretty much what you have to do for all these books. I mean, in case it wasn't clear to any listeners at home, we try to distill down the core ideas of a book, but you should read these books. Yeah, uh, and, and even with that, like this, essentially, if you think about the concept of the book, is 21 different ideas, essentially. And a lot of them are similar or have the same theme or whatever, but it's like that's going to be impossible for me to, 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 
to put into the show and not be a six hour long episode. And honestly, it would get boring and repetitive over time. So that's just not that's just not what what, what happened. So, someday we're gonna we should do like uh, one of those tomes, like secret teachings of the ages, and end up having a seven hour episode, and everyone at home can just listen to us slowly go insane. I will not do that. One no. take. We oh God. I will not one take. Do yep. that. We, we lock ourselves down here, and and we, we get a bucket for our feces, and we keep going until it's done. Mm. I will maim you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I don't know if I can support that. I I just don't know if I can. Maybe maybe when uh w- when the day comes that we're maybe making money off this, we can consider doing something like that. But you're essentially asking me to give up 10 hours of my day to it and then 20 hours to to edit it. Yes. No. We're not doing that. <laughs> I Why mean, I, would I, you do that? We could always, you know, not edit it. Just release it raw. See what happens. I can't do that. You know I can't do that. I know. I know. You're obsessed. <laughs> yeah. I, I, there's a, the, our show sounds, uh, you know, like it does because I have a problem. All right. So are we ready to get into this one? I am. Are you guys ready? Yeah. yeah let's uh, get going with Grains of Sand. In other books that we've read, they tell us the lessons that they've learned along their journey or they guide us through a specific journey that they went on. This time, Brian Kano tells us, as he calls them, the grains of sand that he has collected, the stories that have made him who he is as a person and as a paranormal investigator. A lot of these are short and bounce around in terms of a timeline. And as I said earlier, I don't go into all of them because there are just a ton but I go through some of my favorites and the ones that I feel draw a good lesson for our discussion questions. So, let's get into it. In Chapter 1, The Bad Touch, we learn about the importance of using all seven of our senses. Now, I know what you're thinking. Rory, there are only five senses. Maybe six, if you count that M. Night Shyamalan movie. Well, what Mr. Kano means when he says the seven senses is the five senses that you know and I won't elaborate on, and our sixth sense. Less seeing ghosts and more that feeling that you get sometimes. Like that someone is watching you, that something bad might happen. You know, that gut feeling. And that this sense, our body, is one of the most important tools. And then finally, for the seventh sense, we have common sense. He relates this to a story at a time long ago in 2005 on a local cable access show called Scared on Staten Island. Having investigated all the places on Staten Island, or at least all the ones that they could, his team set their sights elsewhere, specifically the Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. After scouting the place out, taking the guided tour, and doing all of their prep work, they started to investigate. As he began testing out his fancy new EMF reader, he suddenly became aware of an intense pain in his body, but specifically in his danger zone. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I giggled at that point because I am a child. Well, I mean, it's funny. Yeah. After a bit, the pain lessened, but would return in full force whenever he would attempt to investigate. Powering through, Kano dealt with the pain and completed the investigation. I just love the image, though, of some ghost following him around just with a vice grip on his nuts. Gotcha! I mean, because that, that's essentially what it seems like. Yeah. Listen, listen, the ghosts were bored. 
Yeah. The ghosts were just really bored. I've been very bored before. I've never been, I'm going to follow a guy and squeeze his nads. Have you been bored for 30 years? Also, Nick, how many times, uh, you know, between tippers and bean dips, did we just whack each other repeatedly in the nuts? That was high school. Those don't count. They, They do. I'm sorry. I'm trying to remember the last time I actually hit you in the crotch. Yeah, it's been a long time now. I gotta correct that. Uh-uh. <laughs> I, I'm not a part of this. This is between you guys. Years later, in 2012, he would return to the location for another investigation, this time with a group of experienced celebrity investigators, of which he was one. And, of course, regular Joes like us. After a session with one group, he had met back up with the other investigators and one of the psychics, Chris Fleming, said that he had been touched in his danger zone. It was like he had been hit in the face with the realization that all of those years ago, when he was experiencing all of that pain that he had not felt since that day, that that was an anomalous experience. It was this interaction that made him realize how potent a tool our bodies really are when we're investigating. One time, when he was driving back from an event, he decided to take a bit of a detour. He had just stopped for a break when he received a message from a colleague asking how the event had gone. Brian realized that he was relatively close to where said colleague was, and when he told him this, was invited over for dinner. He was exhausted. After dinner and catching up with his friend, he decided, or rather was told, to stay the night there and finish the drive in the morning. His friend, Al, lived at a haunted location that he was investigating with an elderly man named Roger and a couple named Mike and Jen. While Brian was getting ready for bed, feeling a bit cranky from the exhaustion, he heard rustling outside the window. It was too dark outside to see anything save for a moth coming in under the cracked window. He tried to shoo it when he heard a gunshot from the movie that Roger was watching in the living room that was so loud that it startled him. Quote, Again, I heard rustling by the window. Another moth fluttered in. I was about to get up and capture it when I found myself frozen. My muscles refused to heed the commands of my brain. I could only stare as the curtains began to sway. The room became an icebox as the temperature plunged. The light in either corner dimmed slightly. The fight-or-flight response had kicked in, but I was powerless to do either. Continuing on, quote, I heard a low rumble, but it wasn't coming from the living room. Then I saw it. Fingers protruding from out of the darkness and overlapping the curtain. A dark, gray hand pulled the fabric back to the left, exposing nothing discernible beyond it. Just more darkness. A voice, deep and gruff, sounding like it came from below the ground, evolved from the rumble. You have 15 minutes to get out of this house, or I'm going to fucking kill you. I, I just gotta say, I need 15 seconds. If <laughs> I hear that, I'm gone. I'm running out. I don't care if I'm naked. I am streaking across the countryside. And Brian did, in fact, panic. Oh, like yeah. he would. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Why, that, that's why I believe this story wholly. His reaction was 100% authentic. Yeah. And he immediately changed back into his street clothes. Leaving the room, he heard a loud, aggressive pounding on the side of the house. Turning the corner into the hall, he ran into Al, who, seeing the panic on Kano's face, flipped immediately into work mode. Once he told Al what had happened, he was not surprised, but went outside to investigate. While waiting for Al, Brian looked around the first floor, checking windows all while panic and nervousness grew inside him. Al was taking forever, and Brian began to fear for Al's safety. He went to see if he could see Al outside. 
Grabbing a broom as his protection and the moonlight as his flashlight, he went outside. He could see clearly, but he heard nothing. No insects, none of the sounds that you would typically hear at night. He scampered to his car and locked himself inside. And fear won this day, and he left. Texting Al that he had and feeling intense shame at fleeing, but also feeling better every mile that he drove further away. Al texted nine minutes later, saying that he was all right. He'd gone to get a neighbor to check out the area. He'd gathered a posse of shotgun-wielding neighbors who had searched the area but found nobody. And in fact, a pile of firewood would have made it near impossible for anyone to have been standing outside the window that Brian saw the hand. You know, it occurs to me right now, it's probably a good thing that he didn't run into the posse because if he was running around at night in the dark, uh, he could have gotten shot pretty easily. Yeah, especially because the other people wouldn't have known who he was. Right. That home was the site of an ongoing investigation, as I'd mentioned before. And Al's theory is that Brian somehow annoyed or angered this entity. This haunting seemed to end shortly after Roger passed. Kano wonders if the entity or entities in the house were what finally did it in for the old man. And when thinking about that day and the cowardice that he felt, he resolved himself to be more like Roger, who apparently resisted the malevolent haunting to the very end. Quote, Turn on the television. Flip through the channels. Eventually you'll come across a ghost hunting show. Watch long enough and you'll view a demonic case with all of the paranormal activity assigned to one of Hell's minions. A voice, a fleeing something thrown off a shelf, or the dreaded three scratches across the back. It's a demon, they'll cry. Get out the holy water, call in the exorcist. But wait, we don't want to dispel the demon doing wonders for our ratings. Demons give ratings. Demons are a buzzword. And in Brian's 20 plus years of investigating, he believes that he's only come across one case that he believes to have been genuinely demonic. And that was in the Grand Midway Hotel. In the chapter titled The Circle of Fire, we visit this time. The Grand Midway Hotel in Winber, Pennsylvania, the town was named and essentially owned by the mining company Berwind White Coal Mining Company. Offering a starting bonus that was enticing enough to get anyone to move, people flocked here with their families from Europe. Unfortunately, all the promised housing wasn't actually ready. So, the company put all of these people up in the hotel for a, quote, bare minimum cost that would be deducted from their bonus. <laughs> oh, good, slavery. To make a long story short, the mining company allegedly would bury, literally, anyone who tried to talk bad or against the company. They made it so anyone who worked for them was essentially working for free by forcing people to stay at the hotel, and then when the mines did finally dry up, the town was left to die. The hotel soon closed as well, opening again as a pharmacy and a disco, and then being totally abandoned for over a decade. The transition from hotel to pharmacy to disco is genuinely fascinating to me. Yeah. You do what you can with that space, man. I, I just I, I, I'm just trying to imagine like how how did it become a pharmacy? What cha like somebody bought it. We stayed in a hotel that very clearly used to be a roller rink. You know, fair. <laughs> somebody bought it with the intention of making it a pharmacy. They probably had I they probably were gonna use all the additional rooms for things like office space, 
or uh, vaccine vaccine locations or uh, prisoners. We'll cut out the middleman. We're not gonna have a warehouse at all. We'll keep them in all these rooms. The demons are doing Xanax. Repeat: <laughs> The demons are doing Xanax. <laughs> Who would have thought Hell's minions have anxiety? Hmm. Blair Murphy, a Hollywood creative, decided to strike out on his own and move into the hotel, which he got off eBay for $11,000, which is absolutely wild to me. Yeah. eBay. Quote, Blair's Project Mayhem at the Grand Midway Hotel was not to be organized public chaos, but rather an encouragement of the arts. He envisioned a place where artists of all kinds, musicians, poets, painters, and writers, could come and just be a place that would foster creativity in whatever outlet they chose. And Blair set to work repairing both the dilapidated hotel and its grim reputation as a place of heartbreak and loss. He eventually opened the 33-room hotel up to artists and other creatives. While the place was creepy, Blair was raised by morticians and was completely unbothered by this. <laughs> Fair. One guest, a painter named Dylan, was addicted to using altered states of mind to fuel his art and often did a form of suspension involving stuffing himself into a hot suit and hanging from the ceiling on hooks, as well as a heroic amount of drugs. What qualifies a heroic amount? Just all of them. All the drugs? Yes. Okay. I've never done a heroic one. I'm a coward drug user. Yeah. I mean, really, I, I, I just smoke pot. No, no, Nick, on 420, we do heroic amounts of drugs. Yeah, that's true. Remember that edible I took where I didn't move for two See, hours? See, here's the thing. More often on 420, I don't. I just enable others, too. Huh. I, I just like goading people into do, making poor decisions. You're the fucking devil. Anyway. <laughs> Over time, the paintings became darker. Soon, he was only drawing a single figure, an entity of some kind, humanoid, tall, and gray, with a gaunt, nearly featureless face and a horn protruding from its forehead. Its eyes were empty, and often its hands were smoking or engulfed in flames. The entity began to tell Dylan to do things and paint things in a certain way, and eventually it gave him its name. Quote, In the paranormal field, and certainly in demonology, it is believed that names hold power. To know an entity's name is valuable, but to utter it is to invoke that entity in some way. If this thing was sharing its name with Dylan, it was not just a friendly introduction. Perhaps this was the start of an oppression which can sometimes lead to full-on possession. As Dylan drove deeper into drugs, his paintings too became darker. He soon covered the floor, walls, and ceiling of his room with depictions of this entity. Then, randomly almost, he one day decided to reverse trajectory. He tore down the pictures, moved out, went to rehab, and became a Jehovah's Witness. As you do. As you do. Dude, go back to the demon. <laughs> All of that background to get to Kano and the scared crew going to investigate the hotel at the same time as John Zaffis and Rosemary Ellen Gully. The building was laid out over three floors, and each room had a unique name and theme, such as the writer's room filled with bookshelves and antique typewriters. Dylan's old room was on the third floor. They set up the first night of investigation, getting all their gear ready and interviewing the other investigators about their prior experience at the location. But not much happened that night. The supernatural, predictably, did not arrive on cue. Just before turning in for the night, Adam, a demonologist who lived at the hotel, took Brian up to Dylan's old room. Adam wanted Brian to be exposed to the room so that he could recognize its energy, though the entity wasn't there, or if it was, it was hiding. The next night, most of the team was leaving for various reasons, but Brian's cousin Lisa, 
a psychic, arrived completing Brian's three pillars of an investigation team. This was a concept that he believed helped teams remain fair and balanced. It required them to have a psychic, a believer, a skeptic, who worked to disprove, and a scientist who measures. With their team, they walked room to room while Lisa gave her initial psychic impressions, while fellow investigator Chris, the skeptic, tried to poke holes in all of her statements. The last room that they went to was the demon room, which Lisa very much did not want to enter. But they pushed ahead. As soon as they entered, the Gauss meter in Chris's hand, which is a sensitive EMF reader, blared to life. They did a sweep, but could not find any clear source. The spike just seemed to fill the entire room. Lisa made contact with something. She said it was a confused, emotionally tortured young man. The history of abuse that she described matched Dylan well, whom she didn't know about. Lisa said that Dylan wanted to tell them a story, and Kano was immediately on edge. And before letting her tell the story, they pulled Lisa out of the room and told her about Dylan, the paintings, and the potential demon. Lisa had said many accurate things about Dylan, but Dylan was still alive. Furthermore, the spirit felt like a young boy, but Dylan had only ever lived there as a man. So they guessed that whatever was in that room was trying to trick them. Lisa, being a firm New Yorker and a mother, was pissed. When they returned to the room, it felt off, but they continued on. The entity reached out to Lisa and told her that it was waiting for Dylan to return, but it would settle itself on the three of them for now. Lisa said that she felt the entity could be banished by setting up shrines to different religions in the room, to which the entity repeatedly told her to shut up about. At this point, they decided to leave. Chris and Kano left first and waited just outside for Lisa while she was doing uh, psychic bits to help prevent attachments following her. Kano and Chris stood terrified, and calling up a bit of common New Age wisdom, Kano remembered many people claiming that one could ward themselves by imagining themselves encased in a white light. Finally, they left. Lisa smudged all of them, and they went and tried to make sense of what had just happened. The next morning, after a rousing game of Find Chris, as he had gone into a secret room connected to his room because he was cold, as you do, they left. A few weeks later, Chris called Kano. He had been editing the scene of them standing in the hallway imagining the white light, during which they caught a clear but unintelligible EVP. So he went to Chris's house and they analyzed it together. And while they couldn't make out what it said, it was clearly a voice that did not belong to any of them. And eventually, they did figure it out. Quote, The camera was pointed at Lisa Ann as she was preparing to back out of the room. Off camera, you hear my voice softly telling Chris to imagine himself surrounded in white light. Some ten seconds later, we heard the following. Can you break out of the circle? The circle of fire, came the voice. Die, came the second one. The conclusion that they eventually came to was that this was not a conversation for them. Adam, who lived at the hotel and worked with the Catholic Church, had blessed the hotel. Well, he'd blessed every room but the demon room as Blair had asked him to leave that room be. After speaking with Adam, Kano wondered if the circle of fire referenced the blessing that he had done on every other area of the hotel, a blessed area that it couldn't enter, hence trapping it in the room. After revisiting the hotel years later and getting yet another similar EVP, Kano believes that what was captured was a conversation between two spirits and, again, was not for them at all. And with that, 
we'll go into our first discussion question. So we've talked about demons before, and we have a question later about uh, resonance and locations. So instead, something that I want to focus on here is something that I noticed about several of the stories presented thus far. And that is that so many of these more demonic-like or evil entities seem to be bonded to individuals or connected to them. Uh, the one in Kano's friend's house seemed to be bonded to or connected to Roger, and the one in the hotel bonded to or connected to Dylan. So why do we think that that is? Why do they seem to have this connection or attraction to these individuals? And do you think it's limited to demons? And if so, why? And why is it that maybe they have to be bonded if that's the case? I mean, okay, so the horror movie answer is that those are the souls they're seeking to claim for their Lord Satan. Uh, you know, so they're trying to oppress them, degrade them until their soul becomes damned, and I, that's how they get brownie points with Daddy Satan. But, I mean, thinking, I guess thinking more about it, if, I, I don't know if a demons are real. I know there are negative entities, uh, which I guess might as well be a demon. Um, I could see the argument being made that it's almost a parasitic relationship. Uh, we've heard, I, I don't personally fully agree with this, but we've heard some people argue that evil entities on their own don't have a lot of power, right. that they need permission to attach themselves to someone, that they feed off people. So what if the reason they're attached to them is literally because that's their battery, that's how they're doing stuff, mm. As uh, which, which you often see in possession stories where the stronger the demon becomes, the weaker the host becomes, because quite literally they're taking that person's power and turning it outward against the world. Right. Um, so that, I mean, that's what I tend to think that they're using them as like, I don't know, energy snacky treats, <laughs> uh, you know, like a giant human shaped Capri sun. Uh, so I, again, I, I tend to think of these things more as parasitic. Yeah. Um, especially because when you really get down to it, I, uh, most, most of the time we've read, think about, uh, for example, the Bob Cranmer house, uh, the, the uninvited, even though again, I'm not convinced that fully happened. Um, or many of the other demonic stories we've heard or uh, listened to. I mean, when it gets right down to it, at the end, how do they get banished by the person or by the person who is attached? The thing is attached to, or the person who owns the house, uh, asserting that right, asserting this is my home or this is my body, this is my life. You can't have it. That's not uh, always the case, though. I mean, there are plenty of stories of exorcisms that may that that work. I mean, the Catholic Church has a plethora of them, and the owners may or may not even be involved. Yeah, you know, that that's true. I'm just mostly going off ones we've read recently. Uh, it seems like in a lot of these cases, whether it be an actual demon or just a negative entity a way that they're often dealt with is just by taking that permission back. Mm -hmm. Now, that said, I, I do struggle with that permission thing because, you know, it again, goes back to that, uh, that kind of moral question of, is it victim blame? Are you saying that these people wanted this to happen? When I say permission, I tend to think of it more on a subconscious level or a very unintentional level. Like, uh, for example, somebody say, you know, they have a very low opinion of themselves and they're always saying, I wish I was dead or, Oh, look at me. I'm the biggest dumbass in the world. Mm -hmm. And maybe that opens up some kind of wound that these things can kind of worm their way in and get their hook in. I was going to say, because the, the biggest thing that I would that I would struggle with there is like if they're taking permission back, that implies that they had given permission. And that's not always the case. Even with Bob Kramer, he didn't say, come on, demon, let me let, like come on into my house. You know, it's just it seems like there are just certain things or certain events or, or 
uh, uh, maybe even a personality trait or something that happens that starts letting these in and then the demon, the entity, whatever, kind of weasel their own way in deeper. Like with Dylan, it was a clear manipulation. You yeah, know? It, it got, they look for an opening. Right. I mean, that's it. not permission, but you have to give them the opening for them to use it. At least that that's what what we've been reading seems to imply. Right. Uh, the short answer is I have no clue. Um, I mean, the, obviously, yes. Yeah. The longer answer containing a lot of speculation is, uh, on one hand, Nick does raise an interesting point of it, it's not just the horror movie answer that is based in legitimate Christian folklore about what demons are supposed to be doing is that demons and angels battle over individual human souls because an individual human soul is uh the most precious thing in the entire universe and each one is is treated as a as a grand prize in the battle between good and evil um i i i also we've talked before about about resonance uh i know we were we were discussing this in I don't remember when we were talking about this, but talking about the idea of different people having different experiences, walking into the same haunted house or location with heavy paranormal activity, and maybe it has to do with their specific resonance and what frequency they're operating on. Mm -hmm. Maybe demons also exist along certain frequencies, and it's like, no, 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 no. I can only fuck with tormented artists who are taking massive amounts of psychedelics. I can't do anything with any of the rest of them. Why? I have a condition. Like, Well, I mean, and, and that's, so I'm, you're right. We have talked about that idea, and it's something that actually also uh, recently in some books that we have coming up on the show is coming up in, ter- in relation to UFOs, mm. yeah. where we have some alien visitors telling people, like, I can interact with you. I can't interact with these other people you brought. They can't see me because their frequency is too different from my own. Hmm. And they, so basically, maybe that, that's it. You have to, you know, again, you have to be in a state where you are able to be interacted with. And maybe in order to do that, you have to be really down on yourself or a drug addict or you have to be suicidal. So it, it, it kind of reminds me of, there's another story in here that I didn't get to in the summary where Brian and John Zephis are... Um, doing like a random EVP session with an Echovox app in a hotel and they get Ed Warren and then uh, Lorraine Warren through it, but Lorraine at the time was still alive. Yeah. So maybe the reason why Lorraine came through is because her frequency was so much cl- because of her age and her experience and as a, as a, you know, a psychic energy, whatever brought her frequency closer to the same wavelength as a ghost or something like that. So she was able to co- to, to come through. It's kind of the same kind of concept. Yeah, Maybe, no, although exactly. I will say this about that story. It, that also made me think about, again, all the stories we've seen coming up where people say in the afterlife, you're, you're outside of time, in which case, could we all talk to our own ghosts in theory? Because if we are, if there's, that's outside time, we're already dead uh, as uh, far as they're concerned. Assuming that, you know, Time doesn't work in a linear fashion once we're dead or in the afterlife, assuming that time is even a thing at all, um, then theoretically, sure. And I, I'm tempted to try to do a spirit box session where we try to contact our, ourselves. I don't know if it would work as a spirit box session, though, because you'd have to channel yourself. Yeah. It would, you'd be more likely to try and gather it theoretically through an EVP session. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway, it's just a thought. 
Um, and one other thing about the story I also wanted to bring up, which actually is something, Jay, that uh, you've brought up on the show before. So one element of this is that across the hall from the demon room uh, was where... Uh, yeah, the our, uh, painting of the Archangel Michael. Yeah, there was yeah. a large painting of the Archangel Michael on the door. So the implication was the kind of the entity on the EVP that was taunting the demon might have been quite literally an angel. And actually maybe think, Jay, about what you were saying about ancient Egyptian gods where the <laughs> statue... When, when you make a statue of a god, it is the god. It is yes. a place for them to inhabit. Yes. Uh, and it kind of, you know, again, more and more as we read, I just keep seeing that idea coming up in other places where the image is the entity in a way, or it is a doorway for the entity. So that, I, I've, you know, it's funny. It's, I've stumbled across that in a couple of things. That's uh, absolutely a thing in many cultures. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yes. Uh, when you have something of that deity... Yeah, around and I would say, in order for it to actually be something like that, you'd still have to grant it energy, right? In some form, either by offerings or uh, worship or whatever, for it to for for the entity to come through. Because I don't know, thinking otherwise would scare me about the fact that we have uh, multiple like lords of death and things like that throughout the house. We're fine. This house is warded to hell and back. I mean, I that's mean, true. And I don't think those would do it. All right. <laughs> Assuming gods are real, I don't think the the uh, the coffin nail cross above the door is going to do shit against Anubis. No, I mean, I'll give you that. You're probably right. I mean, but that said, it also comes back to are those entities actually negative? I mean, that's we're all, true. The, the fact is we're all going to die. Yeah. yeah, death is a part of our a part of life, and you know maybe that having them around will guarantee that when we die, it will be easier. And I, and I don't say like the Lord of Death is a bad thing because he's not. Yeah, no, he, no, he's not a bad thing. I was just saying like in general, we have so many different statues of different gods that may or may not like each other. I mean, yeah, on this table right in front of me, we have the Morrigan sitting next to uh, and uh, sitting next to a helmet bearing iconography for Athena. Yeah, so. Those two are not pals. Every time we go upstairs, they're just down here, like, fist fighting on the floor, rolling around, <laughs> breaking stuff. Athena's trying to fight, like, a fine, upstanding Greek lady, and Morrigan is just shiving her. <laughs> <laughs> As for uh, my thoughts on this, I kind of, I, I agree, uh, essentially, with, with what, what you guys have said. Like, I, um... I, I kind of had a, a similar thought to what you were saying. I liked the way you put it, Nick, uh, the parasitic, because I th I've always thought of demons because if, if demons are fallen angels, mm -hmm. then they are relying heavily on us in a lot of ways because they are incredibly jealous of us and they're not going to be able to move forward or do anything without corrupting us. They can't enter this world or this realm without us. So they would have to be essentially a parasitic or have a parasitic style relationship with us to be able to do anything. Like in the little bit of angel v. demon lore that I understand. I mean, I, I will put this out there for full disclosure. Uh, part, I, I was, when I was thinking about this question, part of my answer was def, you know, a lot like anything I say. My own ideas are definitely as influenced by the nonfiction I've, I've ingested as well as the fiction I've ingested. Oh, for sure. Uh, and the whole idea of parasitic, that has always been kind of my assumption about demons. 
because of one of my favorite movies, which is uh, Fallen yeah, with Denzel I, Washington. I, I figured. Uh, and th in that movie, the whole idea is that the demon can't exist outside of a body for longer than a single breath, whatever it can hold a breath for, which I think is like, I think they said something like eight miles yeah. or something like that. And so that's the, kind of the whole impetus of that movie is trying to trap it outside of that limit. Also, if you've never seen that movie, you should. Oh, it is it is hands down my, one of the best supernatural thrillers I think they've ever made. It's it's so good. Yeah, that's Denzel Washington and John Goodman, right? It, John Goodman's in it. Uh, Donald Sutherland, yeah, Keith Sutherland's father. Donald yeah. Sutherland's in it. Uh, it is it is fantastic. But that that's not what we're here to talk about. But anyway, that's kind of the idea, though. That's a very Hollywood version of this idea that they require us to be on this frequency and maybe actually. Well, think about it. What if they do come from some other frequency, higher or lower, whatever you want to say, and the only the reason they attach to people is so they can influence things at this level? Yeah, they would have to, and of course that's what they want. Because well, so, like, like Jay said, our souls, are it's like the prize for them. Well, well, now here's the question, though. Could it go the other way? Could you, if you were I, properly versed in some form of I don't know, meditation, astral projection— Anchor yourself into the life of a higher or lower entity and haunt them in return. I, I mean, probably. I, I think it would be incredibly dangerous for you. Oh, absolutely. But God, it'd be fun to, I mean, to you, do that. <laughs> you, you know somebody who's done something similar to that via summonings. Oh, yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, not unfortunate that I know them. Huh? Yeah, but that's one of their primary practices. Mm-hmm. But anything else that we wanna that we wanna say, Jay? Uh I I do I I do think that they're I'm trying to articulate my thoughts. The idea of them needing to feed off of human energy is in order to remain here is is highly intriguing. But addressing the idea of uh haunting a higher entity in return, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Don't do that can you just imagine like Zeus waking up in the morning, walking in his living room, and I'm just naked on his couch eating his food. I mean, I think Zeus would strike you dead. Fucking Apollo walks in, dragging me by the hair, and is just like, "Deal with this. Just, <laughs> just get it out of here." <laughs> like, it's like I was asleep. He's like, "I don't give a shit." <laughs> Your fucking friend is getting ball hair all over my dad's couch. <laughs> He's yelling at me about it. Oh, they're never getting the sweat smell out of those cushions. Oh, God. <laughs> and then the entire way back down Mount Olympus, I'm just repeatedly asking, why did you do this? And you keep going, I wanted to see if I could. And you don't have an explanation beyond you know, that. That might be worth uh, being struck down. Forever staining Zeus's furniture with eau de Denick. <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> All right, we're moving on. Oh, thank God. Life has a way of building who you will become. For Brian Kano, that was the tech guy. Through a series of ups and downs, including making a documentary on Zaphis himself, Kano would eventually become the tech guy on Zaphis's haunted collector show. He considers himself a scientist when it comes to the paranormal. He focuses on observing, collecting data, and formulating hypotheses while resisting preframed beliefs. Quote, I've gone through many phases in my search for answers, believer, skeptic, in my current phase as a skeptical believer. I know that paranormal phenomena exist, I just don't always trust the people who report them. 
An example that I use all the time goes like this. I know that kangaroos exist, but if you told me you saw one outside my house, I would be highly skeptical of your report. Is it possible? Yes, but highly unlikely. So you see, it's not that I don't believe in the marsupial or your power of observation. I just know there is probably a more rational explanation. He argues that it is better to have ideas than beliefs. Beliefs are rigid, non-negotiable things and can get in the way of discovery. Everyone believes that EVPs should be answer and response. Bacano argues, quote, No covenant has ever been made with the spirit world about the rules and regulations of making contact. The parameters that we give for conducting sessions are a rough series of guesses we've made over the years associated with success levels. To assume otherwise is folly. Essentially, don't fall into a structure that we created. It doesn't always line up with how it actually works. Challenge the status quo and continue to expand how you think about the paranormal. Now, on this show, you have heard me, Rory, specifically talk about how I doubt things like pendulums and dowsing and their uses in the paranormal. Well, Brian here, after witnessing the success of pendulums and dowsing in an investigation in Tombstone, Arizona, decided to take it upon himself to test it out. He dug out a hematite pendulum that he had once been gifted and tried it. To his shock, he got it to begin working, showing him the responses that he requested. But he needed to test it and didn't want to ask any questions that he knew the answers to, nor did he want to call on any spirits for fear of one deciding to move in. So he settled on trying to forecast the future. He got a strong reaction when he asked if he'd ever be on paranormal television again. But like any skeptic or scientist, he still doubted it. He wanted to get back on television and feared that the desire had unconsciously made his hand make small movements to swing the pendulum. This being one of the greatest points against using things like dowsing and pendulums in these kind of investigations or really just in general. Since that day, he has used it on investigations and has found that he has a natural aptitude for the practice. Quote, Testing my skills on tour in Northern Ireland, my hosts from Team Blue of Ghost Searchers Ireland assisted me. I instructed someone to stand behind me and hold up a certain number of fingers on one hand. They did so, and after going through the numbers as the pendulum responded, I arrived at the correct one. Once, twice, three times, I kept delivering the right answer. Now, a younger Kano would be deeply irritated to see future him using a pendulum, and yet, it has since become an invaluable part of his kit. It is one piece of tech he has that can't suddenly lose power or just shut off. Using the pendulum, he learned, is a gift, and one that he can use to provide help within his work. Quote, We all crawl around in the dark looking for answers, searching for truth. The search often takes us to interesting places and introduces us to interesting people, Many get hung up with collecting evidence to prove a supposition, but in reality, all they do is gather experiences. In some way, the personal experience is evidence, but is also subject to change. Change in the telling and change in the way it is received. No amount of video or photo proof, no matter how good it is, will ever convince someone who has decided not to believe. Even if they are open, their view on the validity of the evidence will be colored by the manner in which it is presented to them. And even if presented well, it remains slightly dubious because the observer wasn't there with the investigator when said evidence was collected. And hence, they must take some parts of the experience on faith alone. 
And as we know, faith alone is never enough for most, even part-time skeptics. Rather, it comes down to your faith in the one giving you the evidence. Quote, The point then becomes clear that the personal experience must be considered evidence as well, because it too was not experienced by the person hearing the tale, and yet it happened. It took me a while to understand this. It took what I jokingly referred to as a mild possession to really wake me up to it all. And what is this mild possession, you ask? Well, it was the summer of 2014, and Brian Kano was in a gymnasium in Ohio where a paranormal event was taking place. This was slightly odder than a normal paranormal event, if you can imagine, if for no other reason than because of the odd request that all the people attending, quote, remember to bring their Nerf guns. <laughs> this one. Brian, confused but down to clown, obeyed and packed up his Nerf crossbow and shotgun. This sounds like so much fun. <laughs> I felt bad for the wine glass lady. <laughs> While in the midst of trying to stay in some decent cover and crawl towards an escape route, Brian was in a fairly one-sided duel with one particular assailant. Laying in wait, he held his Nerf shotgun at the ready, and when the man was in sight, pop, pop, he got him with the Nerf discs. Then the event coordinator called for a ceasefire as more guests were approaching. Quote, it was a very strange moment. I could feel my face a little flushed, and I felt confused, even a little embarrassed by how caught up I'd become in such frivolous activity when I was supposed to represent myself in the field. I don't know what came over me, but at least I wasn't alone. But this was not the end. His newfound Nerf enemy went off and, when he returned, came with a giant Nerf cannon. It was clear this violence would soon begin again. <laughs> and for the most part, it actually stayed calm. That is, until it was nearing the end of the day and someone opened fire once again. Kano took one in the eye and it was wartime. That was when he saw the cannon and its double-sized ammo. Kano hit the deck as they opened fire. He and a few others took cover behind an overturned table. When the cannon fire stopped as they had to reload, Kano led a mad charge to try and get them before they finished. He and the other members of this impromptu alliance charged over, and they were closing in when, again, Daryl, the event coordinator, called for a stop as more guests were coming. Everyone immediately cleaned up and went back to their tables. The event changed tonight, and investigations began of the school that the event was happening in. Kano was in a classroom doing EVP sessions with anyone that wanted to join him. Many guests did, and they asked questions to the children who were said to haunt the place. This is when Brian realized something. Quote, as I write this, it seems glaringly obvious what had happened earlier that day in the gymnasium, but at the time, it just did not register. Posttown Elementary was a school that saw thousands of children pass through its doors over the years. There had been laughter and tears, excitement and wonder. Fresh minds were beginning to grow. Social constructs were beginning to form. It was a time when it was still acceptable to play until the teacher told you it was time to stop. Kano believed that they had all been influenced by the collective energy left there by all the children who had come and gone in the halls. Daryl even played the role of the teacher, and after the second shout-out, went around scolding everyone. 
Kano, meanwhile, sat there confused, not knowing what had come over him. He had fun, but the whole episode was wildly out of character for both him and most of the other participants. And with that, we're going to move into our second discussion question. So let's roll with this. That the energy left behind had a greater influence on the area and the people that were there. So do you think that all places like schools that have so much energy and that's such a turning point in people's lives that they could generate a haunting? And then do you think that with enough time and dedication, you could turn something around by pouring opposite energy into that location? Um, yes to both, uh, to put it simply. I absolutely believe that places can gather resonance. That is essentially all that a residual haunting is, is it's trapped energy that's been soaked into an object or a location due to the sheer amount of emotional energy that was poured into it prior to the creation of the resonance. And yeah, I believe that you can change the resonance of something. I think it's extremely difficult. And honestly, um, I would interrogate why you want to do that in most cases. Um, it, 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 like if you're attempting to, if the place is currently being inhabited and you need to make it less hostile to the people living there, yeah, sure, go ahead. But, you know, if it's the site of a historically significant massacre, maybe leave the resonance alone uh, I don't really care that it makes you feel bad. It's kind of supposed to. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a good point. Yeah. I, I didn't think about that fact. It, you know, it might, might, there might be a tone there of erasure of past crimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I think for me, I, I definitely believe that resonance is a thing. Um, I mean, I can think of a couple incidents in my life where I was places that the moment you entered it, you could feel there was something different mm -hmm. about it. Uh, for example, in uh, Salem, Massachusetts, there was an old psych ward there that didn't have running electricity or water until the 1970s, and it operated until the 80s. Um, and that place was so, I don't know, just off-feeling that even my stepfather, who isn't interested in any of this stuff, doesn't really like it, he seemed wigged out by it. He didn't want to go near the building. Uh, and I felt that a couple other places, you know, known haunted places, cursed places, things like that. But I mean, even on a less extreme level, have you ever walked into a room where an argument just happened? Oh yeah, you can feel the tension. Even if it's even if you didn't know an argument had just happened, yeah. you can definitely feel it. And I I do think that interacting, we do leave uh, stains on the world around us. And some, like for example, that argument might be something very light that goes away pretty quickly. Um, but if let's say you argue in that room every day for eight years. It's you could be harder, yeah. Yeah, you, I, I do feel like it's, it's, ah, it's kind of like, again, a piece of carpet that you walk over again and again and again. Uh, you walk over to Muddy Boots the first time, you'll shampoo it up, that's fine. But if you're walking that track every day in Muddy Boots, eventually the carpet can't be cleaned. Right. And you have to tear it out. You have to put it in something else. Um, now, I do think, uh, like Jay was saying, most of it is, well, that's what residual hauntings are. They're imprinted memories or imprinted energy. I do, though, wonder... Okay, so let's say I uh, have a home that I have done. I've done a lot of murders in. Let's say I'm a serial killer. I have been doing awful things there. I get caught. Thank God I go to prison. 
someone else moves in there and they want to bring in new energy, right? Because mm -hmm. obviously the place is all stained up from all the horrible stuff I was doing. Um, there's a part of me that does wonder, though, if me as a serial killer, me doing what I did there kind of created a uh, suitable home that other entities might then take a stake in. Mm. Uh, and, you know, thinking about, like, we were going back to the conversation about demons, like, what if some sometimes, you know, you create a place that's so negative that negative entities who are of a similar frequency to the emotional resonance of the area move in? In which case, if you want to change it, I just think it's possible you're going to end up running against something that is actively trying to prevent that because... You're cleansing their home of what they like. Right. Uh, and I, I, th I do think that that is something that we see come up pretty often, especially in, uh, you know, uh, demonically infested homes. Like think about Bob Cranmer. What do the priests tell Bob Cranmer to do? Make love to your wife, laugh with your family, fill this place with life. You know, yeah. what is that but trying to change the residence? Yeah. And then Safi, the demon there, didn't want that. So it started trying to get in the way of them being able to do those things. And and so I just think that that is a, a possibility that popped in my head that would make that even more of a difficult prospect. Let alone, how do you counteract, say, eight years of serial killing? Right. How, how do you do it? I, I don't know. I mean, what, are you going to birth a number of babies that exceeds the number of people who died there? I mean, I don't think there's a uh, playbook for countering that kind of that kind of energy because ultimately what you're what you're asking is how do you what is the opposite of the what is arguably the purest form of evil taking somebody else's life so what's the opposite energy of that like you said it's giving life but also to me you could make i guess you could make the argument maybe or you could uh that filling a place with joy and hope is the opposite energy because things like murder mm -hmm. are the opposite yeah. of, of hope and joy you're you're ending something abruptly so uh the uh, it, it it would just take time yeah you know like anything it would take time and there but there is there's no there's no playbook for this people who who say otherwise they are lying to you because you can say this worked in one situation I, I cleansed this place with water and with the, these set herbs and this intention and poured this energy into it, and that won't work at the next house. It, it almost seems like it's, it's almost a, like a lock and a key situation. Yeah. No, absolutely. Because how are you? I mean, we don't know. We don't know what any of this stuff is. We don't know what's going to work. We just know what has worked and we're willing to try it over and over and over again. You know, like science. It's, right. It's almost like treating a mental health condition of like we have diagnostic labels that provide guidelines for how you are supposed to go about it. But I can have two clients with similar histories, both with the same diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder. And the way I talk to one client that keeps them oriented, focused and calm might agitate and help and aid in the decompensation of the other client because they're different people with very different brains. Right, exactly. And if we're and these entities and this energy is different, they're all different from one form to the other, or from one place to the other, from one entity to another. You know, it's so it's it's a crapshoot no matter how you do it. But I agree with what both of you guys said. I mean, I think all in all, this was kind of a softball question because I knew what all of our answers were going to be. Like, yes and yes. 
you know, but but also I think it's good for us to to repeatedly talk about these things because especially like the idea of group energies especially nowadays like think about what you're doing when and what resonance you might be leaving behind when you're with a group of people maybe they're even just a group of your friends and you spend six hours once a week twice a week three times a week doing nothing but bitching right you know it, it i think it's important for us to remember that even in our daily lives, what we do and how we act, even just amongst ourselves, has a lasting effect on the area around us. Well, and not just the area. There's almost a part of me that thinks that resonance can become tied to, obviously, you know, things, uh, things, places, people. But I almost feel like it can get tied to ideas in a way. No, absolutely. Uh, in, in the sense of, like, once you are engaged with that idea you kind of begin to take on its resonance. You begin to feel it. Uh, and I, I don't know, like a lot, how some information or some conspiracy theory spread online, there's almost a sense of that because yeah. you take people who don't, you know, they're pretty, they seem to be pretty rational, stable people and they turn into lunatics. Yeah, QAnon it, is, is a great example of the, uh, of I would say the more negative side effects of that. But on another, on another note and more closer to home, look at UFO Twitter. Right. That shit is, honestly, it's so toxic. Now, like, 99% of it. Yeah, and now, part of that could be, you know, again, take a step back from the paranormal. It could also easily be, you know, simple social science. Like, you are in a, an environment, some people are bitching, a lot of people are bitching, it starts to piss you off, you begin bitching. Right, and the uh, loudest voices are, are, are always, or are the, the ones, the angriest voices are always the loudest, But you know. But that said, I actually do have a weird example um, so that viewers at home, uh, <laughs> the, uh, three of us have been involved in a LARP club, uh, for quite a while. We've talked about it before. Uh, we have? Yeah, okay. I think so. Well, a long time ago, uh, there was a period where things were not going so well in the club. There was a lot of conflict. There was a lot of drama and it kind of seemed like every single time we hung out with, uh, with people who were in that club or even with each other. We were bitching about it. Yep. Yeah. And we, we were we were uh, complaining. We were being we were arguing. And I started to notice that we had some members who were not involved in any of that. They didn't I don't even think they knew about any yeah. of that going on. But I started to notice it start. They began to kind of pull away yeah. and they began to get uncomfortable with uh with being at game. Now, of course, again, part of that could be. Those of us who were agitated by the drama and involved in it were subtly changing our body posture, our tone, and that was on subconscious level broadcasting to them that there's a problem. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe not. Maybe there is. Maybe we were creating a negative resonance that was somehow attached to the concept of the club. Yeah. No, absolutely. I actually see something like this all the time uh, at work. Because what I do, as I, you know, as I'm, I'm, I know I've talked about here on the show, one of the things that I do is I'm a trainer, mm -hmm. which means I, a lot, there are many times I do a lot of webinars. So I do like a lot of this where I'm just talking to a microphone. But even that, you can tell how I'm feeling based on how I am reading my script or how I'm delivering my training. But even more so when I'm standing in front of people, because body language is what, what do they say, 60% of 
sixty uh, percent of communication is uh, nonverbal. Right, and it's through through your body language. So if I'm having a bad day, and I go into a training, and I'm standing in front of my group and standing in front of the group, and they can tell via my body language that I'm having a bad day, I see it affect them. Just because I'm leading the group, I'm presenting the energy. I you know I'm setting the bar, and then they subconsciously or whatever start to play off of it and then you see it with your team or with the people that you work with if one person's having a bad day you can see it start to slowly almost burn away at everybody else around them you know mm-hmm. well and you know it's interesting because again we go back to uh the idea of the primacy of consciousness right if consciousness truly is the fundamental bedrock of reality which we don't know but that there's some argument to be made that direction then ideas are real in a in a greater sense than even we we assume when we hear that i mean mm-hmm. they're they're real in a very concrete way every thought that enters your head represents an object i guess a, an object in the universe it's just not here in the physical level with us right uh and so you know i could easily see as like well the idea of this training is now being poisoned by your bad mood. The idea of our club is now being haunted by our own negativity. Mm-hmm. Um, no, absolutely. Yeah, but that does make me go cross-eyed. I do have to say. No, no, absolutely. I think that's it. I've be- I've beaten that one to death, as far as I'm concerned. All right, moving on. There are many things that circle the world of the paranormal: ghosts, aliens, Bigfoot. But one that is seldom heard about in a more serious way is curses. Kano never really believed in them. Of course, he had heard of many different ones over the years, from the evil eye to the curse of the mummy. He and Chris had joked for years about a curse on the scared crew, as things kept going wrong for them just when they seemed poised for great success. So often it seemed somehow targeted. Things akin to finding a $10 bill in an old coat, then walking outside to find a $50 parking ticket on your car. This curse, of course, became a bit of a joke for them. And in his personal research into curses, he says that curses only work if the recipient believes in them, or is part of the wider cultural tradition, like the curse of Bambino. Whatever force is fueling the curse is unknown and unlike other invisible aspects of our world, think gravity or wind. Curses require our belief to keep working. Some of his mentors told him that joking about the curse was manifesting it via the law of attraction. And one time, when he was filming for The Haunted Collector, Kano experienced what may have been a cursed object. He and the crew were on their way to Winchester, Virginia, to work with the owner of the historic Jordan Springs Event and Cultural Center. The location was built over an old sulfur spring that was regarded as sacred by the local native tribes. It had opened as a spa for American elite who came to bathe in its supposedly healing waters. Its conference center had been used as a Civil War hospital, a brothel, a monastery, and a rehab center for teens. And likely due to some or all of that had been experiencing a negative haunting. Among the reported activity, an anomalous voice of a young boy, doors opening and closing on their own, perceptual distortions, shadow figures, phantom footsteps, more disembodied voices, and a guest who had been choked by an anomalous assailant, there has been anomalous growls and different electrical phenomenon. Some figures, such as a Civil War nurse and a monk, had been witnessed multiple times by many different witnesses. 
During their investigation, they encountered so many experiences that didn't even end up making it into the episode. For example, the cameraman reported seeing shadows darting around corners. An executive producer found that the bathroom in his room was infested with locusts of all things. Ah, ow, what? No. And on the second night there, they were in the facility's lower level, seated at a table near the basement bar. They asked questions to the room as they felt the energy thicken there. Everyone felt something was about to happen, and then they heard whispers, light taps, and knocks. They followed the sounds and it led them outside where they found a tree that had been taken down by a tornado. At the base of this tree, they found a Native American fetish doll. Quote, Throughout Native American history, likenesses of animals were carved from stone. It was believed that these animal fetishes would aid a person or tribe in their time of need. But this was quite the opposite. This one was crafted to look human in shape, and it was made of branches and dried vines. The body was contorted and appeared to be in agony. To further accent this, it had thorny barbs protruding from its head. Unwilling to bind the object himself, John called a local shaman to help out. And this shaman told them that this doll was created to bring misfortune and harm to a target, that someone had made this intentionally, and that this was an act of true human evil. Quote, On our other cases, we'd identify the item and then remove it, calming things down for people we'd come to help. But this time would be entirely different. No EMF meter I could wave around would detect the culprit. No gadget or amount of investigating the premises could reveal the maker's gripe for Tony or the people at Jordan Springs. The shaman held a traditional ceremony and cleansed the object of the curse. As the ceremony progressed, the weather and seemingly the world around them seemed to calm down in some imperceptible way. Quote, If there had been a curse over Jordan Springs, I felt it had been lifted. All was right with the world. And as the moon rose through the cerulean sky, I knew that everything would be okay. I went to bed that night and had the best sleep I'd had in months. Another curse that Kano had experienced firsthand was that of Oak Island. Oak Island, if you don't know, is the site of many paranormal occurrences, and a 200-year-long treasure hunt that centered around an ancient booby-trapped pit known as the Money Pit. And there's a TV show about it that has been going for eight seasons, and mm -hmm. it drives me insane, and I've stopped watching it because, goddammit, it's been eight seasons. They haven't found anything! Many relics and items have been found on the island that have been attributed to the Knights Templar, and some even suspect that it may be the final hiding spot for the Ark of the Covenant. It's not. I, it, you know what? There might be treasure there, but I, I, I want to see it, and it should take less than eight seasons to get it. Nick. <laughs> what? Kano was called here to film for the Curse of the Oak Island, drilling down. When he arrived, the first thing he noticed was that there was little to no sounds happening around him. Quote, The island knew I was there, and it was holding its breath. It was sizing me up, waiting to see what manner of man I was. Oak Island had been site to ongoing efforts to find its legendary lost treasure. The show had been going for five seasons at the time and mixed traditional archaeological methods with modern technology. Legend said that there must be seven deaths on the island before the treasure can be found, and thus far, six had already occurred. Kano, like anyone would be, was slightly worried that he might be slated for the seventh slot. He toured the island, conducting mini-investigations at the swamp, a rumored-to-be-man-made swamp joining two islands. At the Money Pit, 
the new main dig spot for treasure hunters, human bone fragments of European and Middle Eastern descent had been found there. At Shaft 10X, where the most paranormal activity had been found, including a black mass moving around the area, and at Smith's Cove, where a massive wall had been erected to keep water back from another dig site. Here they'd found wooden, man-carved beams. It was suspected that this was the landing spot for whoever had buried the treasure. Most of the EVP sessions done didn't amount to anything until the last recording at the swamp when he asked, If you want us to stop searching for treasure on Oak Island, tell us to stop now. And the response was, You don't trust us. He went back and double-checked the other files. In the 10X file, he found another when one investigator asked, what's your name? And do you know who Marty is? A voice replied with, chain them. Each recording Kano made had multiple hits, and several of which were very clear. Kano believes through this that mood has an impact on the phenomenon that you experience. Kano had come to the island doubting his abilities, and after mollifying himself and enjoying the sunshine, he was in a great mood during the investigation and ultimately got great results. And this will bring us to discussion question number three. So something that we really haven't touched on much on this show is curses. And while these two stories that I went over, only one was really about a curse. The Oak Island was mostly just about, I guess, like the curse of that island, but still. One of them being an object and the other being a location that, like I said, wasn't really a curse. That being said, at a basic level, so very basic, do you believe that curses are a thing? Why or why not? And then, yeah, let's just go with that. Do you believe the curses are a thing and why or why not? Um, okay, so I'm going to coach this by saying I think the majority of curses, if they, if, they not, if they aren't this, then they began as this, where someone told a spooky story and it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. Uh, you know, someone says, hey, there's a curse on this building. Everyone that enters there gets in a car accident. Oh, wait, well, if I enter that building, when I'm driving, I'm going to be a little more nervous, even subconsciously, and that might affect my decision-making on the road and hence lead to a car accident. Right. Um, that said, I, I'll go, kind of going back to our previous discussion about resonance, I, th- I feel like a curse is just a very similar thing to that. It mm. is. Yeah. Uh, it just might be something that was more willfully created. If I say I'm going to imprint uh, my malice onto this doll and I'm going to slip it into Jay's bed... I mean, there's no, I, to me, it makes sense that maybe that is akin to like putting an infection in their, in their space. Mm-hmm. Uh, that resonance is going to affect them. It's going to affect their decision making. And as before, maybe it will even attract an entity that will then work to perpetuate the curse. Now, kind of uh, digging into that a little more, I mean, we do have this image of the doll, uh, this act of willful evil. And I don't know, think, the reason I kind of came to that conclusion was we, you know, think about uh, Mitch Horowitz or conversation with him talking about new thought and mind power. If we accept mind power as a thing and entertain that for a moment, then we also have to accept that there are people who will use it for bad things. Right. And there's no saying that those bad things can't be directed against you. I mean, so it it seems to me that if curses are real, it has more to do with mind power than magic spells. But granted, what is a spell but a way to focus mind power? Right. Which I guess is a long way of saying, sure. Hmm. Yeah, curses are real. And uh, if you get one cast on you, there's a 50-50 shot you deserved it. 
Like, <laughs> I, I wouldn't go that far. I haven't done the studies. <laughs> all right. All right. Listeners at home, we're going to do a survey. If you've been cursed, let us know if you deserved it. Be honest. Don't ask. <laughs> No, no, we need the casters. We need to we need to pull the casters too. Okay, and if just you try and if you put curses on people, <laughs> email us. Don't curse us, email us. And basically act like you're being hauled into court and you're trying to explain the judge to the judge the extenuating circumstances behind this thing that you did. Like here because here's the thing, if they had it coming. They had it coming. But yeah, I I I think curses are real just because curses are a thing you can do in witchcraft. They're a thing that mm-hmm. you do in magic. I I have never put a curse on someone because I'm not actually really a witch. I'm a loosely a diviner slash pagan. But yeah, I I know that I, I know that there are curses. I have seen spell recipes for them and um but most of them are and the, you know there's and then there's the lesser ones of hex and then d- way down at the bottom is jinxes which are incredibly mild basically the equivalent of a teeny little sunburn of magic um but yeah i i absolutely believe in them because i believe in magic i believe in the power of spellcraft just like i believe in the power of prayer to whatever extent people want to assign literacy to that statement so so here's a thought so here's my so i i i know i've 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 read many many a book that talks about curses and even gives you the 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 framework of how to to you know boc build your or byoc build your own curse um my problem with curses, both like the, I, I have ethical problems with them, or, or not ethical, I have moral problems with, with them, but beyond that, I feel like the biggest struggle that I have with curses and magic in general and utilizing magic to, to do that is to, to impose a curse on somebody is to infect their free will. Is it necessarily infecting their free will? If you, if I, if I build a curse, and my the intent of my curse is for you to to drive off the road because you fucked with me one day, I am of I am putting your life at risk. For what? I'm not saying that they're good things. No, I know. I'm, and I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not attacking you and saying like because you believe in them, you're infecting people's free will. But people believe, people that actively do this believe that if I put this curse on somebody, it will come to fruition. If that person doesn't know that, they don't have a chance to defend themselves. And if it comes to and if it comes true, you have affected their ability to make a decision one way or the other. This thing that you decided, you the individual, you the just another human, decided you wanted to have done to somebody, gets done. They have no opportunity to fight against it. I mean, so uh, this kind of goes back to the, the, the meta theory that I've, I've been low-key developing in the back of my head about how, you know, kind of a mind exercise. How could magic be real? And I kind of go back to that whole idea of the primacy of consciousness. It is... Again, and that, we, that Peter Biebergall idea of completing the occult circuit, it is uh, the spellcraft, the tools, it is all ways of channeling your consciousness towards an intent and focusing it hard enough that you can actually affect reality. 
Um, but I mean, again, we go back to the conversation we had with Mitch Horowitz. Uh, there is such a thing as passive mind power. So there's a part of me that does almost wonder. Uh, yes, I mean, obviously, if curses are real and someone's directing things at you, it might cause problems in your in your life or yourself. But is it? I don't know. I, I I wonder if how hard it is to actually affect someone's decisions because arguably, at least on a passive level, they don't want to get in a car accident. They don't want these things to happen, and so it kind of comes down to a contest of wills, then, wouldn't it? But uh, how can they possibly know that they're battling magic if they are just some person who doesn't believe in that? Well, I mean, I I would think you know again, I would think something like let's say someone cursed me. Uh, to become a murderer. I don't know why I'm on this today. Apparently, I'm in a murderous mood. So, <laughs> uh, someone curses me to become a murderer. At the end of the day, though, well, sure, what if that does put some thoughts in my head? What if that does give me some homicidal urges? At the end of the day, it's still my decision to do it. So, it could be that it's more its more like a nudge than a shove. Is it, though? I don't know. I See? That's kind of that's my point. If somebody put a curse on me for me to fail at my career even though I work my ass off and I try, but then all of a sudden things start working against me. I, I had no say in that. Oh, that's true. I mean, that that's true, but that is less about affecting your behavior and more the world around you. It's affecting my life. Well, yes. And my well-being and my ability to provide for my family. It's putting me into a situation that I didn't ask for and maybe didn't deserve because of maybe one incident and now somebody decided to curse me for it. In, you know. Well, yeah, it's not a good thing. See, I'm not even thinking of curses like that. I'm thinking of the curses I've seen where it's like my asshole neighbor won't stop peeping in my bedroom window. So guess what? He doesn't get the use of his eyes anymore. Right. But even that is that even stuff like that is that like an okay thing to do. Like, I, I agree. Obviously, they shouldn't be doing that, you know, but is it okay to utilize magic to punish somebody for xyz it's it's almost like it's like the moral question of can we should we utilize magic in a way that i mean if it even worked to punish somebody when there are alternatives outside of that i am to put it quite bluntly yes i believe there are moments where it is acceptable to use magic to hurt another person I don't think I would ever do it, but if if you have exhausted other alternatives, if some creepy asshole won't stop looking in your windows and the cops don't give a shit because they're cops and you feel like this is literally the only thing you can do to get it to stop, I feel like I don't have the right to tell someone that that's wrong. I mean, I I I would agree. I don't think that there's I don't think there's really a right answer here. I think it comes down to the individual. For me, I would never do that. Yeah, uh, I would rather punch somebody in the face repeatedly with my fists, leaving a permanent, you know, leaving permanent damage in their eye sockets when I shatter them, rather than curse them with magic. Because for me, magic is something I use to heal myself. You know, it's something that I use to help me not get into that rage, to help me not do to do those things. You know, and again, being able to to hit someone. And not break your own hand. That's oh, my that's hand break. <laughs> you being able to hit someone and it do actual physical damage to them. 
that is an option that you have, that there are plenty of people where there that is not an option for them. No, I I know. And again, I'm not saying that it's there's no right there's no right answer here. Yeah, yeah. Like it, I, it's it, it is literally it is like a, a moral conundrum. So obviously, we we don't know the metaphysics of how this would actually work. Um, but I do wonder though, could you even curse somebody and have it actually have real effect? If you're the person you're cursing does not fundamentally believe that magic is possible. Yeah, it kind of comes back to the idea of if we are generating our own realities, maybe you have to believe magic is real for it to do something to you. That's the argument that that Brian makes here. Yeah, you have to let you know, again, it kind of goes back to the conversation about demons. There has to be an opening for that idea to become part of your reality. And then you're open to it. But then the idea would be once you accept, like, let's say you do believe magic is real, hopefully you'd be more likely to take steps to protect yourself. Yeah. I, I mean, again, though, I, I don't know. I, uh, I am not, I am not a practitioner. I don't, I don't uh, use magic in any capacity. I think it's very interesting. I, uh, I used to be involved in groups that did that, but it just didn't really work for me. And, and here's the, other, and here's another thing. Like, if casting the curse helps you overcome that then do it like whatever you know overcome whatever it is helps you move forward with your own personal life fine you know it's just like i i guess i just wouldn't put the expectation out there that by casting the curse it's going to happen because it may not especially if the if it is true that they would have to believe it for it to come to fruition it's like it's like magical venting yeah no exactly yeah, and that's that's kind of what, in many ways, that that is my sentiment of if it makes you feel better because, I, because personally to me, magic does not feel intrinsic to to me. It does not feel intrinsically like a tool that is exclusively for healing and positivity. It feels like energy. It it feels like power. And for some people, being able to defend themselves is an ultimate expression of power and for many practitioners that that utilize things like curses hexes and jinxes it is about self-defense although i would say you know okay assuming again we go back to assuming it's real assuming these have real tangible effects on the world it'd be i i'd also have a very similar warning about that as i would about uh rory beating up the neighbor in that the neighbor might then show up the next day with a baseball bat and break Rory's legs. Yep. Very uh, true. You, you begin conflict. Yeah. Congratulations. You don't, no one knows how a fight is going to end when they start it. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, there is a danger there too. There all, there, there's always in any kind of thing that any kind of thing, be it physical violence or magical curses, if it is conflict, there is going to be potentially, you know, more conflict. Yeah, it is is a game of escalation. It just reminds me there was a very uh, brief Internet fad where a group of um, a a group of self-professed witches online decided to band together to attempt to kill the Muslim God with hexes. Yep. I remember that. Uh, Ah, and uh, I I, I mean, I I assume it didn't go well for them. But I, you know, again, it's something like that is like, yeah, if you decide, hey, Here's this I even if you know you don't believe a god is a god you think there are what collective ideas you, you're looking at an idea that is 3000 years old 
that there are million, billions of people who have lived their life believing in and giving energy to. Uh, yeah, good luck. Yeah, sorry, you 12 fools aren't going to be able to overcome that. I love the idea of just this pack of racist white witches giggling, thinking that it's just like, oh, we killed Allah, and then just like four Muslim angels show up and just beat the shit out of them with bags <laughs> full of rocks. Well, like I mean, that's genuinely very funny to me. I I I I don't know if they were serious or not, but uh, the, I think that same group were also talking about hexing the moon. Yeah, and, and I was just sitting there, like, why? What what yeah. did the moon do to you? Are you the, mad about was, the tides? It wasn't the moon. They uh they had beef with Diana, the Roman goddess of the moon, and quite frankly, she probably did something worse to them than the angels did. Okay, again, I go back to why? How do you have beef with the goddess of the moon? Like what what? What because happened? they're snotty little sorority girl bitches who didn't know shit from shit. I, I know, but I, I just can't get it through my head how you reached that decision. Did she not show up to the bachelorette party you invited her to? Like, I, what, what could she possibly have done for you to decide, you know, assuming you, if you believe fully magic is real, curses are real, and gods are real, what did the goddess of the moon do to you? That made you think, you know what? Time for a suicide mission. I'm going to go throw myself at a god. Like, I, I just can't get past the cognitive dissonance that has to go into that decision. Because, yes, yeah, I believe it's a god, but I can totally take it. Um, uh, it, that, that sounds a lot to me like people who think that their gods and their faith are the only ones that are real. And so they're going to smite the ones that they believe are fake. Oh, bigots. Yeah. One v one, me scrub. Let's do this. And then they die. <laughs> God, it just it boggles my mind. Boggles my fucking mind. <laughs> like, right. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's let, let, let's uh, let's move on. The next section short. We'll get to our next question. Woo! Do animals have souls? Well, in 2014, Pope Francis sparked controversy with the announcement that all animals did in fact have souls. Sadly, this was reported in error. So the question remains, do animals have souls? Well, Kano always believed that if a man does have a soul, so must two animals. It is the energy of life. And if this is the case, and all animals have souls, so insects would have souls, does that mean that killing them damage our soul? Despite his inherent skepticism, Kano never doubted that animals live on just as we do likely because it brought him comfort in regards to the deaths of his own beloved pets. He even once asked a psychic to try and reach out to his old cat Smokey, but she was unable to. She theorized that maybe it was because Smokey had already been reborn in a new form. After Smokey had passed, Kano wasn't much of a pet person, at least not until a former girlfriend decided that she wanted a cat. When they were looking at the kittens, his girlfriend had already selected an all-black kitten, with the most cat-like personality, sitting quietly, uncaring if they would get adopted or not. And right at that moment, a black-and-white kitten appeared and shoved its paw through the bars, yelling at them. Quote, A bundle of personality, this one was. He was reeling her in as I watched in slow motion, and the sounds around me faded. The black cat in the cage below him continued to stare. Then, he looked up at me. His expression did not change but I knew then and there that we were going home with two cats. Kano believed that, with cats, names don't matter, because saying anything in the right tone will gather their attention. So to him, all cats were beady, with a lowercase b. Kano found the new cats pleasant, but also kept them at arm's length, insisting that they were his girlfriend's cats, not his. 
When he and his girlfriend broke up, she took what she could, including the black and white cat. She promised to come back for the all-black cat, named Salem, but sadly, she never did. Over the next few months, the black cat began coming out of his shell with his older brother not around to bother him. He started to play and to interact with Kano, and bit by bit, he became Kano's cat, and it was officially named Beatty, with a capital B. The next few years were happy. He and Beatty bonded, the cat always coming when he called and greeting him whenever he got home. The cat always began acting as sort of a wingman for the women that Kano brought home and would act as an early litmus test. If they hated animals, he wanted nothing to do with them. Beatty, again now with a capital B, got sick while Kano was filming Haunted Collector. He had a thyroid problem that could be handled with pills. While this was good news, it forced Kano to finally confront the truth that his time with Beatty was limited. He reached out to energy workers and Reiki masters, putting his skepticism on hold to see if they could help. Kano even thought that, if he could, he'd donate years of his own life to extend Beatty's. And on October 15th, Kano had to say his goodbyes. Quote, The animal I had not wanted to take home a lifetime ago, I could now not let go. The tragedy of a terminal situation is choice. We, as caretakers, are given a choice to hang on or let go. We have to make the decision, and then we must live with it. And Beatty was put to sleep, and of course, Kano was devastated, and that night, he had a dream. He was in bed sitting up and felt as if something was moving on the bed with him. Then, he was with Beatty, purring loudly and circling up in the crook of his arm, snuggling. The purr in his dream was so loud that it woke him up. Quote, I believe Beatty came to visit me that night. In those moments, he came to let me know that he still exists. Beyond just my memories of him, his soul, his energy is still out there. He came to reaffirm my faith, to keep me from retreating into a fortress of walls and cynicism. Love is forever. Despite the pain I feel over his absence, knowing that his essence is eternal does soothe the loss, and I hope to see him again someday. And this will lead us into our fourth discussion question. So, we have previously mentioned our thoughts about animals in the afterlife, but let's put our flag down. So do you think that animals have a soul? And then, a little bit deeper, do you think that animal souls, if they are a thing, can eventually re-enter the cycle and become human? Yes and yes. Much li- yeah, much like, the, much like the resident's question, my answer to both parts is yes. I think animals have souls. Um, that is one of the many things from the Hindu and Buddhist traditions that I, that I have firmly taken into my own practice. Animals have souls and quite probably insects also have souls. And uh, I do think that they can become human because again, if, if they, if they reincarnate into the cycle again, that's, that's what, what I, the traditions that I am pulling from that's almost the purpose of being in an animal, of your Atman being put into an animal or your, your continuation if you're talking in Buddhist terms where they don't have Atman. Um, it, that's, that, yeah, that's the purpose of you being in an animal is you're getting ready to be a human again, is that you're just at a different stage of your journey in the cycle. And for right now, you have to be an alligator. Um, don't ask us why, because um, it's really, really complicated, and we don't know why. And also, the why is not important. You're just an alligator this time. Try to learn from that. Uh, 
Um, and the thing that Kano was speculating about specifically about like, well, does does killing insects because they have souls does that damage us? Is that why it does that mean it's intrinsically wrong to eat animals? And honestly, to explain that, I just have to cite the Lion King and the the circle of life and the whole thing about like, well, isn't it mean that we eat the antelopes? No, the antelopes are supposed to be eaten. Like it's it, right. Again, no, that's a fair point. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I think I, I struggle with that point, not, not to distract too much. I think I struggle with that point when it comes to humans specifically, and the reason is because of factory farming. Uh, we cause undue suffering in our in our predation. Uh, factory, far- factory farming is intrinsically wrong. I do not think it is inherently wrong for us to eat animals, even if they do have souls. Um if yeah, if it's it's like if we treat them well during their life or if they're wild game and we hunt them fair and square and we don't torture them for profit slash fun, um, I, I think it's fine because for, for the same reason that it's not OK to train a cat out of wanting to eat mice. Right. The cat right. is supposed to be eating mice like a human being is fully capable like, like you did, Rory of fully capable of making the independent decision of I no longer wish to eat meat. Mm-hmm. But it is not unnatural for us to eat meat, and therefore it is not immoral for us to eat meat because it's it, it's what we're designed to do. It's one of the ways that we can be at our most healthy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I believe that animals have souls because, quite frankly, I I look into Buffy's eyes every day, and that is that's not an empty vessel. There is... There, there is something warm and beautiful and continuous in there. I firmly believe that, and I absolutely believe that they can become humans. Um, I know that because I think I have been a cheetah the majority of times I've come to this <laughs> come to this planet. Because uh, all I want to do is sit in a safe, stable enclosure, and occasionally my brain says, "Gotta go fast," and then I go outside and I sprint for about two blocks. <laughs> um. No, I, I believe they do, uh, because thinking of the alternative makes me want to cry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but beyond that, I mean, okay, so if I'm being honest, I can't be sure, because I can't even be sure that I have a soul. I suspect I do. Of, of course, it's all speculation. Yeah, well, no, no, but my, I'm getting there. My, I suspect I do, and that suspicion does impact how I live my life, but I can't know. That said, if I have to put my flag down and say and say one way or the other, absolutely they do, because when you get down to it, yes, we build tools. Yes, we build buildings. But really, there isn't that many differences between us and them. Correct. I mean, it, it just, at a fundamental DNA level, we're not that different. We share most of our DNA with sea sponges. Yeah, uh, there is. I mean, even on a non-scientific level. I mean, what else is the soul? Is it emotions? Well, my cat certainly has emotions. He got real pissed at me today. Uh, <laughs> my puppy certainly has emotions. He's a psychopath. <laughs> so what? I guess it comes back to what is your definition of a soul? Is it the idea that there is a continuation? Well, uh, if we go into the idea again, going back to uh, the idea of the primacy of consciousness, if that's the case, then all living things are ultimately a vessel for consciousness to connect to a shell that is momentarily housing a piece of consciousness that will go back to the collective whole, uh, that big tapestry of souls that Whitley Strieber wrote about. And in which case, of course they do. It wouldn't make any sense if they didn't. Uh, granted that kind of gets into the idea of pantheism, Mm -hmm. which is, uh, the concept that, uh, consciousness is innate to all of reality. So, 
rocks have consciousness. It's just not a consciousness that we would understand. They think rock thoughts, and we can't process what the hell a rock thought would look like in our human brain. That is exactly what um, you, like, when following the steps of Druidry, that is exact. what you just said is exactly what we believe. Yeah, ab- and that is not uncommon. I mean, pantheism has a long history in uh, world religions and occultism, especially if you go back to a lot of the uh, kind of the older nature-based religions like Druidry. Yep. Uh, there was this concept that the world itself was alive and you interact with it on a daily basis. And the only, and the way you live kind of uh, correctly is to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. You know, like, for example, I think about this sometimes when I go and cut the grass. Uh, now, obviously, we know now that the smell of fresh grass, which we all love, is the chemical distress signal. So it's grass screaming. It's yeah. the it's the warning sign. <laughs> um, Something bad is happening. Well, and I, I just think about that, though. I mean, is it immoral for me to cut the grass if the grass does experience consciousness is experiencing a trauma from it? Mm. Well, at the same time, I mean, how do you live in the modern world without causing harm? How do you exist without causing harm? Like Jay was saying. For a long time, vegetarianism wasn't truly an option for a lot of people. That was how they got the majority of their uh, caloric intake. There was a period of time, especially uh, there was a period of time where, I mean, the argument is actually been made quite often that the reason we develop brains the size we did is because we were ingesting meat. It's much more dense calorically. Um, Well, so just to like, I guess. Uh, argue one point based on what you said there mm-hmm. it, it not being an option uh it was it's always been an option um because there's plenty of ways to get your protein uh even without all the plant-based proteins that we have now previous to this you know because vegetarians have been around forever there have been their entire cultures of people who have been around for thousands of years who have never ingested meat um right but if you're my point was let's say you're part of a tribe you know, that is a hunter-gatherer tribe. And winter comes, there's no more plant life. If It's starve or eat. Well, yes, but yeah. you're, you're talking in a very different situation in thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago when we wouldn't have evolved to even be able to make this choice. That's true. Well, and again, that goes back to the idea of uh, your cat can't make the choice, and it, nor exactly. should they because they will die. And if you're trying to put your cat on a vegan diet, give your cat up. You're abusing it. You know, and that is actually, that's an interesting point. Um, I agree. Do not ever, ever put your pets on a vegan diet. It is not healthy for them. They are not omnivores in any form. They are. So anyway... Um, you guys actually brought up all the points that I was going to make, which is funny, like especially the the idea that everything is connected, including plants. But one thing that you said, uh, they actually just talked about this on What's Up Weirdo, the whole cutting the grass thing. Yeah. Um, you know what's funny is I listened to that while I was cutting the grass. Huh, that's funny. But like a lot of this, like plants evolved so that we would do exactly what we're doing. Um, for example, like plants evolved so that when we picked the fruit and eat that, eat them, we would spread the seeds. So when we are doing things like cutting the grass and we're, we're, you know, planting trees and picking the fruits, we're not harming them. In fact, we are doing their bidding. Right. Well, and even going to a greater extent, I mean, it's often true 
It's often true that what we perceive as a great tragedy or as destruction is is natural. It's it's something that needs to happen to foster greater life. And a great example of that is not in the modern context where they're getting out of control because of our interference and the things we're doing to the climate. But forest fires are natural. Yes. Forest fires actually need to happen for certain species to propagate to the point that there's a type of hawk that intentionally starts them. Yes. And so, yes, it it is a great tragedy. There is much life loss. But again, you kind of go back to the idea of if reincarnation is real. I I, I hesitate to say this in case there's a would be murderer out there who's going to get real inspired by this. But death ultimately then just death and destruction is ultimately not as big of a deal. In the end, it will be all right. New life will grow and new consciousness will come into it and things will continue to progress onward. Um, it's a giant blobby gray area of like what is what is a natural horror versus an unnecessary one, mm. I suppose, is the question of like, of well, like again, the difference between I hunted this fucking deer fair and square uh, versus these chickens live in little boxes and aren't allowed to walk. Uh, which I want to make one more point on that. Uh, hunted this fair and square. I have always held the belief that if you are going to go out and hunt an animal, you should do it naked with your bare hands. You fight them on their level. No, Nick. Does that mean I have to go and find a bear and take their hands? No, you fucking idiot. <laughs> All right, Nick. Let's, uh, let's, let's drive on down to the res and let's talk to the tribal council about that. No. They're going to tell me I'm wrong. Why would I do that? I can just sit here in my opinion, and because I never have it challenged, I, I'm right. But you they, just had it challenged, but No, but Jay's opinions don't matter to me. <laughs> oh, oh, that is a good glare. That is probably the best one I've gotten in like six months. So uh, to answer the question from my perspective, I agree yes and yes to both, uh, to both of these things. Uh, I... I believe so strongly that animals have souls that I refuse to eat them anymore. Yep. So I, I think that I think that's pretty telling. I mean about my belief there. To be honest, I'm I'm moving that direction. Yeah. Like, I, I realized I've had three meals with meat this week. Like I thinking about it now, like even just thinking about it, I start to tear up. Like that's how much it started to impact me, like on an emotional level. That like and and I and you know what did it? And this is just me speaking my truth, Buffy. Yeah? Like, something about the way that she looks at you, like, and looks at me specifically, it was just like, oh, oh, you're, you, and like, obviously, I love Murphy, too, you know. But, but he's a cat. He's a cat, and he, <laughs> he does, like, and he, he does, he has a very, a very loving glare, too, because he does the the head tilt at me all the time, and. But there's something about the way that Buffy looks at me with her big old eyes that I was just like, oh, oh my, you know, it just, it, it like shifted my entire perception of not just her and Murphy and the other animals, just of all animals, you know? Her eyes do look so human sometimes. Like she is so expressive and she's found so many ways to communicate what she wants and what she needs she, like she does this thing every morning and it breaks my heart because like, we have a routine and she you know i get her up every morning with me and i let her outside i bring her back in i feed her, her breakfast i give her her pill and then i i'll stand there and i'll just pet her for a while and you know we just have a little hangout and then she wherever she's sitting when i'm giving her a pet she sits there 
with her back away from me, but turns her head and stares at me as I'm leaving for work. And it breaks my heart every day. Yeah, I know. I know. She does that to me, too. You you know what? uh, you know, it's actually something that just occurred to me. It's kind of funny, Rory, if we track your trajectory of you getting back into practicing uh, spiritual path and mm-hmm. getting into druidry, uh, it aligned, you know, you. it seemed like when you went vegetarian, it kind of accelerated. Yeah, no, it did. And what's interesting about that well, is that— Going vegetarian was a part of my practice, in well, a way. Well, it, what's interesting about that is that vegetarianism was a hallmark of a lot of the hermetic— cults mm-hmm. uh, it was a hallmark of uh i mean it was a hallmark of a lot of ancient esoteric traditions because there's this idea of you're purifying yourself you're making uh i guess the glass clearer through which you can see god or uh, the divine or whatever you want to call it and very similarly uh i've seen that come up in ufo contactee narratives mm-hmm. where they say like after my you know again how many people after their abduction experience became vegetarian yeah, they be- a lot yeah, yeah. and and so it, it is interesting that what if again i i don't know what to make of this that you know clearly it seems that if all that's to be believed humans going vegetarian puts us more in touch with spiritual side with god or with whatever it is but then why wouldn't that how does that make sense for a carnivore is that you know because assuming that the soul they they all have souls i guess what is the difference are we just saying that if you are born into the body of a carnivore that's just not a life where you were meant to be spiritual or art to carnivores is that innately a spiritual action of eating another's life i think at least for for me i can only really speak you know based on my own experience right right for me, I think it was this it's the sacrifice as part of it because I know I know that I can eat meat and get my you know get my calories in, get my protein in a lot easier than I would otherwise, right? But I think there's part of part of it is the sacrifice of not doing it, of letting those other souls live on and living a, a quote unquote cleaner life by making those choices. It's almost like by making the by making that active choice to walk this different path, you're forcing your yourself and your mind to think differently, not just about what you eat, but how you're living your life. So it's more about the sacrifice than it is what you're actually doing. To to an extent, I would say yes, because I, I think that's part of the journey is you have to make some kind of sacrifices. Because I don't think I would ever be more enlightened than Jay just because I choose not to eat meat. Because I think Jay could make the same kind of life choices and sacrifices to walk the same path by by still having that by still intaking meat, you know. I just think it's one option, and for me, that was the option that made the most sense. You know, it's interesting. Is it? It's very much like uh, the visitors trying to get Whitley Strieber to give up chocolate. Exactly. Uh, it's the sacrifice that mattered, not the actual object right it also reminds me of the old uh, it also reminds me of like those orders of monks and nuns that will do very like the most common one is the vow of silence of i enter this convent i will not speak for the next 35 years it's it's literally the exact same logic of like no speaking is not unholy quite the opposite actually most Catholics believe that the gift of speech is one of the most sacred things that God gave us. There, mm-hmm. There's actually some hardcore Catholics that are against things like um, machines being given the ability to talk because they find it blasphemous. That's fascinating. But oh my God, 
Yeah. Siri is the Antichrist. No, uh, legitimately. Like, like voice-activated software. This is kind of fringe, and it's very, like, strict Catholicism and some evangelical groups, but that is legitimately a thing of speech is a sacred gift from God. It's one of the things that sets us apart from animals, but that still doesn't counteract the holiness of making the choice to give it up as a sacrifice for God. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. But yes, I believe animals have souls. Me too. Anything <laughs> right. else? That's what we were talking about. Because I don't want to cry. Uh-huh. Same. Uh, I've got nothing else for that particular question. All right. Let's move on to the last section. Kano identifies himself as a skeptical believer. He believes the phenomenon are real, but that most of the time there are, is a prosaic explanation. Quote, it's a funny thing, belief. At the core of the word is lie. To believe, you literally must lie to yourself. That sounds harsh, I know, but faith in something you cannot prove must come with a certain amount of self-deception. A suitable story or compromise must be established to quell the sirens and red flags in your brain, telling you that something is amiss. He believes that the world has moved on in a way. Once upon a time, you didn't talk about religion or politics in polite conversation. Now, though, in the age of ultranationalists and Trumpers, it is flipped. Now everyone has an opinion and scream them as loudly as they can. And as a bit of a side note, I want to say this is something I strongly disagree with him on, at least in the way that he portrayed that statement. I think it is a great thing that people are now standing up and saying their opinions because it implies on both sides that this is happening. Yeah, it sucks that there are a lot of people who have really shitty opinions, but there are also a lot of people on the other side who have great opinions who are starting to say them where they wouldn't have before. So just, that's my little soapbox. He blames his somewhat jaded view of humanity partly on being a knight of Miyuchi, a self-given title, but one that he takes seriously. What does this title mean? That's a great question. If you asked anyone on the street, they would tell you that Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone, right? Yeah. Well, that's not entirely true. A man named Antonio Miucci built a teletrofono that allowed him to speak to his bedridden wife while he was in his basement workshop. Plagued by financial difficulties, he was forced to drop out of the engineering program at the Florence Academy of Fine Arts. Bad business deals and fraudulent investors caused several of his companies to fail, and due to all of this, his patent on the teletrofono lapsed, and he ended up dying impoverished and disgruntled. Now, Kano and a team were investigating the Harbaldi Miyuchi Museum in Staten Island when he learned what might be one of his most important lessons. Quote, Spirits just want their stories told. They want to be acknowledged. For those who have been wronged or forgotten, they want to set the record straight. It makes sense. We are social beings. In life, we gather and create communities. We foster friendships and start families. Our very existence is about the connections we make, which is why we seek to maintain those connections after death. Immorality can come from many different sources, be it the soul, a song, or just the utterance of one's name. So much of what we do in our lives is in service of the basic statement, I was here. The museum was the former home of Miyuchi and was where he died with his wife. It had been moved since then, and the basement that was there was not part of the original house. The crew investigating held a two-night investigation. During the first night, it was plagued with technical difficulties. Lights turned off, camera stopped working, 
and when they finally called it, they had little to no evidence or readings. The second night, however, they got a ton of hits around Miucci's death mask. At first, they thought something was up with the wooden piano that he had built. Lisa, Kano's psychic cousin, was getting off feelings from it, while Kano's EMF reader seemed to be set off by it. As they poked at the piano looking for hidden compartments, Lisa got the strong sense that someone didn't like them doing it. Soon, the mask began radiating an EMF field again. As an experiment, they moved the mask to another room, where it first became quiet, and then began emitting EMFs again. Lisa reported feeling a chill at her back, and using a laser thermostat, they confirmed the air right behind her was many degrees colder than the surrounding air. It's like a reverse fart. <laughs> the property caretaker then asked if it was Miyuchi with them. Lisa Ann, interpreting for the spirit, said that he was and was over by Lisa. He said that he was hanging out over there by Lisa because she took him seriously. When asked who didn't take him seriously, Lisa reported that the spirit grew mad when the caretaker let certain people, skeptics, in who didn't believe that it was real. They noticed that during this time, the wine from the EMF reader reduced whenever the spirit spoke, as if tampering down its own energy to ensure that Lisa would be heard over the device. According to Lisa, Miyuchi wanted people to share his story, not to come here for their own benefit, but to learn and go back into the world and share the truth of his accomplishments. He wanted his picture and his story to be told on their show. And that night, both Chris and Kano swore to spread Miyuchi's story as best as they could. In him, they both felt they found a kindred spirit, a hard worker who received little of the accolades they deserved. They wanted to help correct that injustice. So they branded themselves Knights of Miyuchi and try their level best to tell others his tale whenever they can. And the next story gets a little shitty. And I apologize in advance for that, but it must be told. This is my favorite story in the book. Quote, I'm a gamer. I love board games, card games, video games, all types. When I was a boy, I spent many hours playing Dungeons and Dragons. It spoke to my creative nature, imagining and creating castles, encounters, entire worlds even. That opening scene in Stranger Things where the kids are playing in the basement, that was a perfect snapshot of my youth. And as a kid, Kano would see the flyers for Gen Con and would dream to go. He would insist that his family vacations not to be on the beach, but rather that they would go to Wisconsin so that he could attend. Unfortunately, that never panned out. But fortunately, though, he did finally get to go in his 20s. Once he went to one, he was hooked and soon became a volunteer for a gaming company and went from attending demos to running them. Gen Con became massive at this point, averaging 30,000 visitors a year. Naturally, booking hotels was difficult, and when the event moved to Indianapolis, there was only one option, a five-star hotel called the Historic Fister Hotel. One year, a booking error bumped them into a small suite. It was located on a corner and could only be accessed via a special corridor that led only to their room. The hall itself was eight to nine feet long. On one of the days of the con, the crew returned around lunch to drop off loot before heading back to the con. They went through the hotel and into their room, encountering nobody along the way. They rushed to drop stuff off and rushed back so that they get to the next panel or event. 
When they entered the room, however, they noticed a goopy brown substance splattered on the wall in the hall outside. God damn it. (laughs) Quote, there was a thick mass at the center. The seeming impact created tendrils reaching out from all directions, in direct contrast to the orderly lined pattern of the wallpaper. They gathered around the goop, and someone said, Oh my God, someone shit on the wall. (laughs) Because, well... That is what appeared to have happened. Oh, my God. But how? They didn't recall it being there when they arrived, and they literally just got in the room. It couldn't have been more than two minutes. So they thought if someone snuck into the room, dropped trow, and decided to power wash their wall with shit, they would have heard it. I mean, you'd think. <laughs> I just, just some ghost bent over, screaming about Chipotle while they power blast the wall is the greatest image I've gotten out of a book we've read recently. I just can't believe that diarrhea is a thing in the afterlife. Look, the ghost is taking a new probiotic. Things got out of hand. Stranger still, this mess had no odor and looked as if it had been solidifying on the wall for a while. Well, at least they were polite and didn't have a stinky one. You can control that? No. Hey, just hold the stinking... So they called the front desk, and some unfortunate soul had to come and clean it up. And speaking as Rory here, uh, that would not have been me. I would have quit. Uh, I almost did quit a job once because of something like that. So yeah. yeah. Now years have passed, and Kano's life has changed. But now he was returning to the same hotel, just this time it was for work. On the elevator ride up, his coworker told him that she'd heard that the hotel was haunted. His co-workers knew of his paranormal interest, but regarded it as little more than a hobby. He suddenly remembered the long-forgotten fecal fountain <laughs> and realized it was possible a ghost had done the drive-by shitting. I am a child. This is hysterical. Quote, This was a grain of sand that it took a long time to be shaken out of my clothes. Between the actual event and my understanding of it over a decade had passed, there was plenty of reports detailing spirits leaving behind other kinds of evidence but I was hard-pressed to find any reports that backed up my experience. That being said, there are still many questions. Like, why? The only explanation that he could think of is, the paranormal is everywhere. You don't need to look for it. You don't need to look for it to find it. On locations, he believes, are just places where you are more likely to find it. But it could be anywhere, because everywhere is haunted. So, before we continue, I need to tell a quick little story. Okay. Uh, so this happened while I was in college. Uh, I was in a uh, handicapped dorm, and I only had one roommate. And this is because uh, the car accident I was in in 2008, I went through my freshman year of college in a full-body plastic shell. And full disclosure, I was out of my mind on painkillers that year. So it's quite possible I just missed whatever caused this. But I only had one roommate, and I... I knew where he was at all times. He was either in his room or he was off. He was on the football team. And uh, when he was in the dorm, he was either in the bathroom or his room. And I knew he wasn't in either of those places. I was alone. And I went into the bathroom and I brushed my teeth and I stepped back out to check something. Or no, I, I stepped back out to watch something on the television while I was brushing my teeth. And when I stepped back in, there was a gigantic turd floating in the toilet. And I know it didn't come from me. And I don't think it was there before. So to this day, I'm haunted by the phantom turd. Wall people. (laughs) Wall people. It's also a college dorm. So, you know, somebody could have literally just ran in there, dropped a shit, and then left. If somebody managed 
to open that door, run past me in there, dropped a six incher and then left while I somehow didn't hear it. Then my college had ninjas. There was some secret it ninja. It was the Nick, Flash. Nick, you are so oblivious. Sometimes. I think I would notice if somebody was pushing. I think I'd notice if someone was pushing out a chode next to me. Now you you say that, but there are times when I've had full on conversations with you, and you just like and a chode is a dick. Just by the way. stared. I, I was just trying to go. I was thick. And yeah, you just stare sometimes when Rory's talking to you. It's horrifying to watch. You'll give answers. It's it's like you're possessed. Yeah, no, I've I've had full conversations. I have no active memory of. Yeah, I've been there. I've witnessed it. I've been on the other side. There's a specific baby. There's a specific laugh you have for when Nick checks back into a conversation and you realize that he's absorbed nothing that you've talked about for the last forty five minutes. It's the exas. It's it's fond exasperation that comes from years of familiarity. Yeah. You don't make that laugh for literally anyone else. <laughs> well, I, and I know exactly what you're talking about too, because I yeah. 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 Uh, you guys are interacting with my voicemail. Yeah, pretty much. And <laughs> uh, Nick is not there right now. Uh, uh, so, yeah. The last story that we will go into, and there are many, many more in this book. So if you liked any of these, please go buy the book so that you can experience the rest. But the last story that I'm going to tell is one of the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast. So Brian was investigating the house when a headache from hell hit him dropping him to one knee. And this wasn't the first time. In fact, this happened every time that he went to the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast. Quote, As you may have suspected, I didn't honestly believe my headache's origin was supernatural. I spoke the name of the family patriarch in the way an atheist invokes God when praying at the porcelain altar after a night of drinking. It was a last-ditch effort motivated by desperation and colored with insincerity. He managed to get up and get back to it, something a psychic had said popping fresh in his mind. He was told that the house was preparing for him. Kano isn't sure why the house or the entities within it would dislike him. He was friends with the owner, Leanne. He often stopped in just to say hello with no cameras or alternative intentions to gain more publicity. He'd investigate there and supported investigations there many times over the years. It was so consistent he wondered if Lizzie herself was attacking him, whacking him in the head as she was rumored to have done to her father and mother, or maybe it was the actual murderer. He also considered if he was picking up on the echo of the trauma from the murders, an empathetic vibration so strong it had physiological effects. But then, why did it often start long before he reached the house? He tried medicine, massages, hydration, Reiki, and prayer all of which failed to address this pain. The only thing that seemed to work was leaving, as the headache would soon depart once he hit I-95 leaving town. On one visit, he noticed coins left on top of a bureau in Andrew, the patriarch's room. He was told these were bribes. In life, Andrew had been a frugal businessman, and now some left money to ensure a quiet night or to ask him to appear. This was a new concept that Kano hadn't encountered before offerings to bribe the dead. Returning at a later time, the headache cropping up right on cue, he went to Andrew's room, greeted him, and saying he didn't mean offense, he just wanted to give an offering. Kano then left pocket change on the bureau. The pain eventually vanished and, in fact, has never returned. Examining this, Kano wonders that if the headaches were caused by empathy, 
then how could the bribe take it away? If an entity was doing it, was it Andrew? Or is it something else drawn to the sinister history of the property? Quote, Let's continue down this path for a moment. Perhaps a spirit arrived and was fed by the attention of curious tourists. The voices calling out to Andrew, Abby, and Lizzie would be answered, but not by their actual namesakes. The more attention this entity received, the more it grew accustomed to its new identity. Eventually, it settled into a new role that became synonymous with the house itself. But if that's true, why did it affect me in the way that it did? In his research, he's come across many stories of non-human spirits that become associated with land and home, most often called fairies. Fairies, being benevolent, often mischievous beings, fairies can be honored with offerings. Quote, the lore also state that offerings left at lakes, tree groves, and other sacred sites can allow fairies to help ward off illnesses and misfortune. Could fairies be living on 2nd Street and Fall River? And if the people there anger the fairies, could things go horribly wrong? Like, say, a double murder? And the answer to that is yes. <laughs> wow. You know what? After all this time of us wishy-washing, never sure about anything, yeah, fairies did it. Great. Oh, yeah, I'm just saying. We're down to one concrete truth. Fairies did that I've, thing. I've been listening to that book uh, from, like, 1918 about the history of the fairy folk, and uh, yes. Okay. They are some crazy beasts. I'm not going to question it. Sure. Fairies did the Lizzie Borden murders. I'll buy it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You've solved the, one of history's I greatest did, I'm not. Cases. I'm not saying that, th that they did. I'm saying that it's possible. I, I just have this image in my head of like Andrew Borden napping on the couch and just this evil little garden gnome creeping in with a hatchet and giant smile on his face. Kano isn't saying that fairies did the murders, just that if the lore is true, maybe they had some influence in the events leading to it. If not that, maybe then it could be the work of something more demonic. 44 years prior to the Borden murders, another double murder had occurred on the same street. Eliza Darling Borden, second wife of Lizzie's great-uncle Lodwick, drowned two of her three children in the cellar cistern before taking her own life. This occurred next door to what would become Lizzie's home. Ultimately, he can't be sure. No one can. Which is one of the most frustrating things about the paranormal. Quote, So what did I encounter in the Borden house? A demon? A fairy? An empathetic, an empathic echo? Andrew? Abby? Lizzie? The jury is still out. And maybe it's all in my head. And with that, we're going to move into our last discussion question. And this one is less a discussion question and more of a reflection. So, we've been doing this show for a little over a year now. And some of us have, like we've talked about actually throughout this episode, we've dabbled in this world for many, many years, well, you know, on and off, really most of us. So, let's reflect. Of our experiences, what grains of sand do you think that you, yourself, or we as a show have collected so far, and what is your biggest takeaway from all of it? Okay, so... As a general rule, I tend to discount any paranormal experience I have if I'm the only witness, because I have to accept that, you know, it could be an issue of brain chemistry. It could be an issue of one of the drugs I was on in the hospital uh, re-releasing into my bloodstream, because that can happen with some of the ones I was on. Especially the ones that hold in your spine. Yeah, yeah which that my spine is deeply fucked up. So, yeah, yeah, no, it's totally possible. No, I get it. I've done so much, uh, so many psychedelics and, and, and things like ecstasy that I... 
every now and again. It's very rare now, but I still feel rollback. So. Yep. Now, that said, I have had a couple that other people saw. Uh, so those are the ones, I guess, are closer to my grains of sand, uh, being the way he spoke about them, meaning individual incidents that when you take them all together, you have something. You have yeah. an, uh, something that's telling you there's more to the world. My first one was, I mean, really, it was the UFO I saw. Because mm-hmm. that was, that was uh, I, I think the more we do this show, the more I'm realizing how foundational that was that shaped a lot of my interests going forward. Uh, I was at a bus stop with two other kids. Uh, we were waiting. It was like 6-ish a.m. because we had to be there stupid early to get the bus. Yep. And it was winter, so it was still dark. And it, I mean, it looked like a like, kind of like a football shape. And it just glided silently over the neighborhood and then was gone. Uh, and I remember, I'll never forget, it looked like a coal in a fire does when it's really mm. hot. Yeah. It had that kind of shifting orangish color to it. And I remember looking at the other kids and saying, did you guys just see that? And they said, yeah. And then none of us talked about it. And then I forgot about it for a decade. Yeah. Which is bizarre. But again, we see that all the time in UFO stories. Um, Another one was the hose factory incident, which we've talked about on this show and other shows. Yep. We talked about them. The 444, I think, or 222 Paranormal Podcast and Paranormal Burrito. And uh, I talked about it on Jim Harold's Campfire. There we go. Uh, there was one point in uh, Riverside Cemetery in Mount Pleasant. I was with a group of uh, student ghost hunters and me and another girl who were walking around the back of the cemetery by this really cool mausoleum. Uh, we saw a fully formed orb appear, float across the path in front of us and vanish. Neat. Uh, and that was neat. <laughs> um, but again, you know, it is a grain of sand. It was an incident where, oh, that happened. That's weird. And then there's nothing, no really, nothing you can do with that. Yeah. It's just that was a weird thing that happened. Though I think if I have to uh, pick one that that probably had the biggest impact on me over the course of my life, it was one that there were no other witnesses for, and that was the entirety of my experience when I was in the hospital, specifically in the ICU following the the car accident I was in. Um, And the reason I say is because the more I look back on it, yes, it is very, very possible, if not likely, that everything I saw was caused by the drugs. It was caused by the trauma. It was caused by me having a massive concussion. But that said, some of the hallucinations I had and the uh, experiences I had during that period, looking at it in retrospect compared with some of the stuff we've been reading, it looks more and more to me like a visionary experience of mm. some kind. Because I learned things about myself during that that I... Not not just I didn't know. I didn't want to know. Yeah. And and so it did feel a little bit like that inward journey. Something had like the manhole cover been ripped open and I could see down into my own uh, sewers into the subconscious of repressed thoughts and ideas and the elements that make me up. And while that is more a psychological experience, it it felt somehow spiritual. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, especially considering there were some entities I perceived which again, it could very likely was a hallucination. But now, now that I've learned more about the paranormal, those entities sound a lot like some of the things we've read about. For example, I would frequently in the ICU see this uh, shadowy man with a hat, like I could see a wide brim of a hat walking around. He had no details save for shadow. Hmm. So a hat man. Yeah. Uh, there was a, um, 
Uh, there was another strange entity that I saw a couple times lurking outside the ICU and peering inside, and it was, I don't know how to describe it. It was, I think, like, you know, a gray. Mm-hmm. But imagine if you took gray and you mixed it with an emaciated corpse. Mm. Like, very gaunt, starved, uh, sh- eyes were shrunken in. Like a Nosferatu gray. Yeah, kind of. Um, And then I had a ghost experience in the basement, which that one, a nurse saw a light turn on and off right there at the end, so it might have been real, but I don't know. Um, But I, I, so taking all that together, obviously, uh, like Kano argues here, yes, they are individually, they're not that impressive. I saw something. I, I saw something. It ended. I don't know what to make of it. There was no message from the cosmos. There was no... Uh, no ghost that I managed to banish with the power of my cross, nothing like that. But taking it all together, I think what those events did is they act as a constant reminder that there is more. And, and that's, that's really what it comes down to, is that this universe is built on mystery, and we should learn to accept that mystery and love it and look for it, because it's everywhere. Yeah. And... uh yeah, I, I think that's that. That's largely it. it. It keeps me guessing, and that guessing leads me to to having interesting thoughts and interesting conversations and reading wild books. Yeah. Uh, and I I think that every time in my life where I've started to drift away from the paranormal, where I've stopped really thinking about, it, I've started adopting a more materialist mindset. Usually, that's when an experience happens. It's like there is something prodding me that's just saying no you gotta you gotta remember gotta keep going yeah that there is there is something here worth looking at and it deserves your time Mm. now again that could be me reading into coincidence it could be reading into a lot into nothing but does it matter exactly like if it feels intuitively true and it only affects my personal journey does it matter and i don't think it does Uh, because ultimately we're all brain i i have no proof either of you are real truly i have what the signals, my eyes, ears, skin, uh, what my senses are telling me, but how do I know those are real? How do I know that that's actual reality? I don't. One one of my fa- absolute and my like one of my absolute favorite quotes from like from Harry Potter is when Harry asks Dumbledore when after he's killed, um. Is this all happening in my head? And the response is, of course, it's happening inside your head, Harry. But why on earth should that mean that it's not real? Right. Well, especially if you adopt the world, a worldview of some sort of universal consciousness, it's all in our head because we're one head. <laughs> it, exactly. And that's kind of like that's kind of the point that like that quote is one of those ones that it's way deeper than it has any point, any uh, right being. Yeah. Yeah. See, that, I think that, that that's largely it. I'm, I, I've had a couple other smattering paranormal experiences. I've certainly had moments where I felt a connection to something. Usually when I was uh, back doing divinatory things, I don't do that as often anymore, save for some friends. Um, but on the whole, again, it, a lot like what Kano said, these things, when you take them together, point to there being something else. Right. I, but they've also, I think the diversity of what I've experienced has taught me to not settle on any of it you know to basically always be asking and always be questing because that is at least i believe what we're supposed to do while we're here alive we'll get the answers when we're dead yeah no i like that good answer jay um for me it in terms of grains of sand um probably the 
here's the thing is at the end of the day, Swan uh, basically walked into this house, walked into my life when I was 11 years old and has been dumping a broken hourglass over my head ever since then. Um, Because uh, y- you could really count every single time she's appeared in front of me and I couldn't pretend that I wasn't seeing that, right. that I wasn't seeing a black silhouette that was very clearly alive and moving. Like each individual instant of that is is a grain of sand. And every the, the few, thank God, the very few times where other entities have bobbed up that were not supposed to be around me that I either saw or heard her do something to them right is I, also cur- a grain of sand i'm curious i never asked because i know we've we've discussed the idea I mean, when we were talking to mike ricksecker we discussed swan and try to get his ideas about what she was did you give her that name or was that name somehow given to you i uh it, it it's more the second one um she communicates through me primarily through tarot cards she always has um and there was at one point where it had been so many years and I was done trying because honestly this is I just realized this I Nick I stopped pretending she wasn't real when you saw her at that first bonfire I attended at the house yep no I I I saw a figure uh actually I got I completely forgot about that I saw a figure a hooded figure standing behind you at the bonfire it was like just for a couple seconds but it was long enough where I could look and then there was a beat, and then it vanished. I saw you see her, and that was a very freaky moment for me. Um, and yeah, uh, that's a grain of sand. Exactly. Yes, it absolutely. It's a very yes. It's a noticeable grain of sand. But yeah, one time I was doing I was doing card draws with her, and this was also how she communicated that she wanted coin offerings. Is I. Yeah, I was basically doing single card tarot draws, asking her questions, and I would either use the meaning of the card or the imagery depicted on it to kind of reverse engineer what she wanted. And um, when I asked her about her name, she kept bringing up this one card that had a woman holding a swan in her lap. Mm. Okay. And the interesting thing is now one of my main deities is Apollo, whose main animal symbol is the swan. And I've been, over the past few months, I've been getting some communications that he might have been the one who sent her originally. That would make sense. Yeah, she's she, she's my main divination spirit. And yeah, that that would make sense. And um, I think you should explore mediumship. I, uh... Some things seem to be tugging me in that direction, right up to the fact that that psychic at the fair, um, she wasn't even talking to me. She pointed at me and said to you that I could be a medium. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's a, that's a bunch of grains of sand. Um, my tentative steps or towards paganism, where I have been attempting to talk to a deity and like because I usually do it in our room alone. I sit on our bed and I I talk and I try to pray and sometimes I will feel the bed dip next to me or behind me or suddenly there's an arm around my shoulders but no one's there. Mm-hmm. Um those those feel like grains of sand to me and uh yeah, uh and as for what I've what I've gathered from it is basically the biggest thing for me is you know, I, I grew up in a situation where I was taught that these things were not real, but they were dangerous and that essentially I would be inviting poison into my life and much more severely into my mind. 
mm-hmm. by doing this. And I'm starting to realize that it's like literally everything else, that it, it can be good or bad depending on what you're doing with it and how much you are controlling it versus letting it control you. And in some ways, I know this is a barrier to my practice and it's it's been difficult to negotiate, particularly with the deities that I'm trying to work with. I am very firm about like this shit happens on my terms. And that's just, again, that's just a consequence of the way that I grew up and the fact that, but yeah, I, I the main thing I'm, I've been taking away over the last few years is this is not inherently an evil thing. This is not, this is not poison. This is another thing like anything else. And basically I am not somehow weak, stupid, or bad by going down this path. And that, that feels like the most important thing that I've learned specifically. Good. I like that. You know, it's funny. So I did forget one thing I want to bring up. Uh, For some reason, your story reminded me. Uh, I did have one other incident that my, someone else saw and it was my mom. Uh, This was, we, um, we had, my grandma had passed. We took my, uh, her ashes down to the Gulf of Mexico because my grandpa was spread out at sea and we didn't want to spread her out in the Gulf because she was, um, she couldn't swim. She was afraid of swimming. Uh, and so we said, well, we're going to spread her on the shore. That way she's close to him. And so we, we went on some rocks and we kind of tossed, uh, the, the ashes handful at a time out into the, uh, shallow water. And as we were all coming to get back together as a family, uh, both me, my mom, and a couple other people very suddenly saw these two birds that kind of appeared and flew around us. Really? They flew very close to us flying in perfect tandem with each other. And then they flew behind this rock and they were gone. And I saw this, my mom saw it. I mean, it could, again, it could be, they pivoted, they landed and we didn't see where they went into the rock somewhere. But at the time that in intuitively, that's not what it felt like. It felt probably felt like, uh, uh, after death communication. Yeah. It felt like we saw them and that was them saying, Hey, we're okay. Yeah. Um, and if that's what it felt like, that's what it was. Well, and what's interesting about that is, okay, so my grandma used to tell me that when you see a cardinal, I mean, it's a, it's a common folklore thing. If you see a cardinal, it's the soul of a dead person coming back to see you. And true or not, it is interesting because we, I, we have cardinals in our backyard. And every time I see him, I think about that. So even if that is not the, you know, capital T truth, the metaphysical reality, <laughs> that that thought keeps me in a metaphysical space. Yeah. And yeah. so it might as well be true. Yeah. No, as far uh, as uh, my day-to-day existence goes. Yeah. No, uh, exactly. I think for me, I, I have a couple that I've thought about in terms of grains of sand. The hose factory, obviously. I mean, that was a terrifying grain yeah. of sand. Uh, it's obviously up there. There's there's a, a um a couple others that I that I thought about uh, recently. I think the the potential dogman sighting coming back into my brain is is up there. Um, even though it lasted all of like you know five seconds have you ever told that on the show yeah i told that okay. on the dogman episode remember yeah. i did a, i never told you guys that oh. before because i forgot so oh, I, yeah. told, we, I saved it for live on the air that's right i you know what's funny i forgot that episode yeah that's okay <laughs> it was a while ago another grain of sand i think for me i mean there's been there's been a few that I guess I could classify as that a lot of them being like different, like things that have happened via divination stuff that, that have 
like come to fruition either based on somebody doing a reading for me or things that I've done on my own. But one that stands out to me, and I've never told this story on the show, and I don't think I've talked about it since um, uh, probably many, many years. Uh, so the last time that I was actively practicing magic, I did a lot with angelic magic. I practiced specifically with one angel in particular because he picked me. Um, and I didn't tell Nick ahead of time that I was doing this, that I had like started working hand in hand with an angel. And because he was away at college at the time, the first time that he saw me in like after I'd started practicing that, he didn't say anything to me, but called it out. Yeah. No, I remember that. It was something weird about your shadow. And that moment told me not only that what I was experiencing with that deity was real, but that it was like, it impacted me in such a way that like that moment felt like a turning point in my practice with him, you know? And so like that, to me, like that was like a huge grain of sand because it felt, it was like validating in its own way that I wasn't losing my mind, you know, because the only, the only deity or only entity, because like you've talked about Swan and your interactions with him and, or with her and Nick, you've talked about like some of the, the, the things that you've seen. I've never seen anything but I've felt things and I've heard things before, but, uh, but he, Sariel, the angel was the one that I felt the most because it wasn't like I sought him out. He sought me out, you know, and I, because I encountered other people who were dabbling with angelic magic. And so eventually like it, you know, it came, like, I started dabbling with it as well, and that all of this, like, snowballed into itself. That being said, I stopped interacting with him for many years until I started practicing druidry, and then he came screaming back into my life almost demandingly. Well, you and, know? and uh, do didn't you feel, I mean, I remember you mentioned, uh, so we did an investigation not too long ago of our friend's house where there's been a lot of activity. Since I was a kid, I've I've had experiences in that house that terrified me. Um, but again, they were things I saw alone. So right. they, they didn't they don't count, I guess. Um, but I we had we did a couple spirit box sessions in that house, and I remember you saying one of them, I mean, it seemed like we weren't talking to we were talking to uh Sariel, it seemed like, especially because when you had the headphones on and you were uh you had your eyes closed, so you didn't see us, you couldn't hear us. And I remember asking, is the Sariel? And you said, that's a bingo. <laughs> uh, so we actually got to review those audio tapes. Yeah, I, I haven't pulled them into the computer yet, but I want to, obviously. It's like both of our spirit companions showed up and both of them were equally levels of aggressive, which uh, I'm fascinated, actually, to know if Sariel and Swan uh, interact. And I want to know if she tries to beat him up and fails. I just uh. wish I knew why the, the one time I tried to be the person with headphones on, the message that came through clearest was shove it up your ass. Yeah. So <laughs> Multi Multiple times. Yeah. It's funny uh, that you bring up that moment because I was actually going to call that as another grain of sand because if for no other reason it felt like 
a step back into that side of the paranormal for us as a team. Yeah. You know, I mean, I hadn't done an investigation in over a decade. Yeah, same. I, and that and was, I wouldn't even have classified what I did previous to this as real investigations. I would say that that was my first attempt at a real investigation with tools and like actually attempting to gather data. I, I still say probably the most impressive thing we got that night was the ball that lit up. Yeah. Uh, there, we had a one of those motion-activated balls that lights up when it's touched. And it was across the room from everyone. It, no one was near it, and it just started going. Yeah. it was. It, no one was even moving, so it wasn't like vibrations. No one else was in the house. There wasn't any pipes that were, like, making sound in the, in the walls or anything. I'm, I'm a little bummed that we didn't get anything from the SLS camera, though. You know, it, 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 like Brian Kano says in the book, it doesn't show up on cue. Yeah. No, absolutely. I was just saying I was a little bummed, but... Like, I, I'd say those are probably my biggest grains of sand. I've had a plethora of other little experiences, um, but I think those are probably the ones that stand out to me the most. Um, that being said, I think my biggest takeaway from my experiences with the show thus far and comboed with the, the, the experiences I've had is always continue questioning the why. Don't just settle in. Um, because the more that I learn, the more that I realize what I thought before may not have been entirely truthful in the way that I interpreted it at the time, but there's always more to be gained even from, from reexamining something of the past. Like I've grown and, and, and come to understand more from, from Sariel and from everything else just by being, by reexamining all those same situations that I was in before, you know? So I think that's one of my biggest takeaways is to never settle and always continue questioning the why. But I liked that. That was a cool. That was a cool little conversation, a little reflection. So thank you guys for uh, 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 playing along with that. That was fun. Of course. We ready for about the author? Yeah, let's do it. Woo! All right. Uh, so Brian J. Kano was born on February twenty second, nineteen seventy four, in New York City. He attended LaGuardia Community College, Stratford Career Institute, and Wagner College. Uh, he is a recognized expert and personality in the paranormal community and is well known as a pioneer of paranormal television via his Scared on Staten Island public access television show, which influenced the later paranormal hunting shows featured on major networks. He has been featured on a large number of paranormal television shows, including Haunted Collector, The Curse of Oak Island, the Unexplained, Most Terrifying Places in America, Paranormal Caught on Camera, Bermuda Triangle, Science of the Abyss, and Doomsday Caught on Camera. Uh, he has appeared as an actor in a number of minor television and movie roles, and arguably his biggest was as an anonymous rock concert attendee in the 2016 Ghostbusters movie. Mm -hmm. uh, he has voiced two audiobooks, Demon Haunted, True Stories from the John Zaffis Vault, and Haunted by the Things You Love by John Zaffis and Rosemary Gooley. Uh, his work has been featured in numerous industry imprints, including Taps Para Magazine and Haunted Times Magazine, and he is a frequent fixture on the paranormal conference circuit where he lectures and often hosts his own investigation-centric events at haunted locations. As part of that, he also created a mobile museum exhibit on the history of the paranormal, which he brings with him to cons. He also runs the Roast Town Paranormal Academy, an online program where one can sign up to receive firsthand instruction from Brian and medium Beth Deering regarding how to conduct paranormal investigations. 
Grains of Sand is his first and only book to date, and he currently lives in Staten Island. And I will say, he is a pretty competent writer. Yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed the the book, uh, you know, especially from a writing perspective. I thought it was very well oh, done. No, absolutely. I, I think that was what sold me on the book, because I, I tend to like there to be a through line. I like there to be a point that I can try to chew on a bit and, and attack. Yeah. Uh, attack's the wrong word, but you get what I mean. Yeah. Um, and there, there wasn't here, and I missed that. But that said, uh, his prose kept me going because it was consistently entertaining. It was mm-hmm. consistently clear and articulate, uh, which is sadly not always the case with the books we cover. So yeah. I, I enjoyed myself. Uh, listeners at home, if you're interested, you should definitely go out and pick it up. It is a quick read, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's yeah. a neat little book. And also, again, the story of the Chipotle ghost power blasting the wall is one of the funniest stories we've encountered on this show so far. I love it. I, I would agree. So are we ready for housekeeping? Housekeeping. Housekeeping. All right, let's do it. So if you liked what you heard, please like and subscribe on whatever podcasting platform that you are listening on. And if it's Apple or Spotify, please leave us that five-star review because it really does help us get uh, get seen in that awful, awful algorithm. But if you want to interact with us, you can do that. We have some social medias here. Starting off with Twitter, we have a show Twitter at Pod, and I am at MixRoyWicks. I am at BearishTerror. I'm at Midwest Undead. And then we have a plethora of other social medias. We have an Instagram, Noctivian underscore podcast. We have a Reddit account, Noctivian Podcast. We have a Tumblr blog, Noctivian Podcast. I think that's it. So what do we do? What's up next? We are, uh, we are returning to the land of UFOs, and we're going to be reading a work from Canadian UFO researcher Grant Cameron uh, called The Portals and UFOs of Mount Shasta, which I got to say so far is one of the weirdest UFO books we've covered, but it's going to be a lot of fun. It's mostly about South American contactees and how that experience is different from North American contactees. Interesting. But also this idea called Zendras, which are basically, from my understanding, uh portals that et sometimes open for these contact groups to uh, facilitate physical contact oh interesting uh it's it's wild i mean some of the descriptions are intense but i mean some of these events that we're going to be discussing have hundreds of witnesses so very cool i'm looking forward to it and next week we are talking to brian kano himself that's right so you have that to look forward to as well. I'm sure it's going to be very interesting and very fun because he is a very entertaining man, if nothing else. Yeah. But I think that's it. Yeah, I think so. So lead us out of here, Rory. All right. So good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Stay safe out there on those midnight roads. But just power blast your nearest wall. Just do it. Don't shit in random places on the midnight roads. You don't know who that wall belongs to. The midnight skid mark. Oh, my God. I'm so fucking tired of you. Good night.
can I reincarnate as a tree, please? Please, I just want to hang out and blow in the breezes. <laughs>